0: Welcome, everyone, to the penultimate episode of A Space Pot A Tea. Uh, Pod Like a Hole presents A Space Pod A Tea, that is, where three lifelong friends discuss David Bowie's discography in completely diamond dice order. Um, and we've landed finally on the last album to review. And that would be 1977's Heroes, Part 2 of the Berlin Trilogy, if you will so indulge the court. I'm um, very happy to be with Stephen and Eric. And uh, if you're first-time listener, uh, this is Mark speaking, one of the creators and co-hosts of this thing we call Pod Like a Hole. Um, and, uh, the beast with three backs incorporated CEO founding member. Um, and my God, you guys, I never thought we would get to the final album of David Bowie's discography. I don't know how long this project has been going on, but it's, it's been a, it's been a journey. Let's just say, um, so, uh, riding one of the mules on, uh, up this mountain, uh, is, uh, Stephen Earl. Yes, this whole this whole thing took longer
1: than I thought it would, but at the same time, I don't know how long I thought it would take because there's no way that a experiment this stupid would not take a long time. I don't know what we were thinking, trying to review every album and every side project of a artist with the discography and renowned, endless. Stable of songs is David Bowie. I can't believe that we're here now. Is uh that, that I, I can't believe we've we've ascended the tree, as they say. Uh, Siddhartha, I believe.
0: Maybe that's a sex thing. Uh, it might be. I mean, we can uh, look up chapter five in the Kama Sutra, and I'm sure we'd find something. Or we could just ask Eric's parents. I just, I just have to say that, you know, if one were ever to be
1: as foolish to continue such a... Uh, a, a a a series of further experiments let, let let this be a lesson to us on uh the endurance it takes to tackle an 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 artist's entire discography a career that probably spans like 50 years or something <laughs> yeah yeah
0: you know, you 27 albums 27 albums alone on paper what we'll, was we'll, we'll, that's insane done them all but uh Coming up on the, uh, the caboose, if you will, on this uh, caravan through the stars, I guess you would say, uh, wagon train through the stars, um, it would be our dear friend, our trusted advisor, the professor of us all, that would be Eric Monroe. Oh, wow.
2: You're too kind. You're too kind, guys. Um, yeah, it's been... October will be three years since we started Nine Inch Nails and uh, we are a year and a quarter from when we started David Bowie. So, you know, I think uh, happy to crunch those numbers. I'm always happy to crunch numbers for you guys as, as the intern here, but really hoping you'll present to the board, maybe giving me that coveted third, third co-host spot, um, you know, after we finish this season. Really got my fingers crossed for that. Can't wait to go on the, uh, the writer's retreat to Berlin when this is done.
1: Well, if You know, if, if, if we will let that situation reflect a real life situation, you know, I tell everybody that I'm going on leave for two weeks and I still get emails and texts to me saying they want something on their desk by Monday morning. Um, so Eric, what I'm trying to tell you there is that, you know, yeah, sure. We might be listening to you, but we're not. Anyhow. Um, super. You'll, 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 get that promotion somewhere else on another podcast. Did you, did you say it, it took us almost two years to do nine inch nails? Uh,
2: nine inch nails was, uh, October, 2017. And we started Bowie in April, uh, 2019. So, uh, yeah, year, year and a half. Yeah.
1: Well, we started when we first started, we were doing one, we were doing one a month for a while. So, well, folks, you know, we really leaned into it, and we've made this a tight machine that just keeps chugging with content that goes out to you on an almost weekly basis, and we're pretty close. I mean, bi-weekly, bi-weekly is the, the standard, and sometimes we, we clear that, so right now it might be a good time for you to go over to patreon.com forward slash pod like a whole and reward us for all our hard work thank you
0: uh yeah i mean the reason nine inch Nails season took so long is because we had the great idea that only one of us namely me was editing most of those episodes and uh that was your that idea. was my idea and boy oh boy uh cooler <laughs> heads prevailed on season two that's why we were able to turn things out the whole division of labor uh it certainly you know holds some truth to productivity and efficiency.
2: I mean, I've been getting one done a week for the last uh, for the last uh, month, but it's, it's fine. Don't worry about it.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, yeah the the phrase uh,
1: quantity over or quality over quantity. Wait, wait, no, no, no. Quantity over quality comes to mind. So, yes, Eric. Um, I don't know if I'd go bragging about all the episodes you've put out, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh so much blood sweat and tears i I do appreciate all of the the last i think month and a half or maybe two months that you've been having to be in the editing room so listening to me and steven uh talk for that long um i'm sure that uh it's enough for you to do a jack torrance up at the overlook hotel all right
1: (laughs) i agree mark I already praised him on either the last episode or the episode before, so you don't need to do it again. I'm not, okay. I'm
2: not, fish, I'm not fishing, fellas. I uh, once per I, year. I'm lucky to, to have the. T- I'm lucky to have the time during summer break. So that uh, that patented Eric editing that all you listeners are, you know, all you Eric heads are loving. That's that's about to come to a, an abrupt end. Um, at least at least for this season. So well, next, yeah, that's
0: true. Yeah. All right. So uh, we've already. Uh, it, it seems, looking through my notes, the records, the archives, if you will, we have already discussed the year 1977 when we had our uh, returning champion, Joe Vieira, on our Low episode. Um, it's unbelievable that both Low and Heroes came out roughly the same year, and let's not forget that both The Idiot and Lust for Life also came out in 1977. It was a very prolific year. Is that That's correct? That's fucking insane yes yeah yes yes that is that is crazy we we will
1: not be going through we will not be going through and doing the pop culture because we've already covered it gentlemen i am checking my notes for season three i don't think we ever get to do pop culture again we've covered all the years that's uh we're not you know that's i think i think we've done our last pop culture review
2: what am I going to do with all this free time now? I mean, all the, the, the sleepless nights have been researching each year and, and writing down notes upon notes. And, and now it's going to just free up. Maybe I'll get a new hobby or something.
0: There you go. You'll put it into, uh, I don't know, something equally as. Uh, I don't know where I'm going. I'm trailing off here, Steve. Maybe I'll, I'll finally get my PhD. Well, no, I'd like,
1: I'd, I'd like to, actually I'd like to I'd like to think about that. Let's unpack that. Eric, so it takes you hours to prepare that notes and notes the night before. So what do you do? Do you go to your phone and then you pull up your bookmark that says year of 1977 and save it the night before and you don't look at it again until you're recording the next day because typically that's been your, your process is you're, you're reading it while we're hearing it for the first time. <laughs> sure. Unless you're a terrible reader. things. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I, I find the website and uh, I spend hours finding the one website and then I don't read it because I want it to sound like I just have this knowledge in my head. You know, like I'm just I'm just uh, like a a professor, as Mark called me earlier. So I have to give that spot spot name. That's a little look behind the sausage maker uh, for you all out there. But
1: yeah. and, And since and since we don't get to do the years in review anymore. That might mean it's the last time that you've heard about sports it's true or maybe not you know what you know let's uh let's hear that song one more time ah yes sports
0: <laughs> hey mark did you watch any uh, baseball this weekend you know i did and i gotta tell you um having no fans in the stands for for baseball there is definitely it's just not the same uh, the spontaneity of the crack of the bat and hearing the crowd go wild in real time uh, brings a little juice to the game uh, rather than cardboard cutouts and stuffed animals I do love baseball I do I love it um, but it's just it doesn't seem to have as much urgency and I don't know excitement I think it, it, it's a sport that truly needs that 10th man in the stands you know what I'm saying um, what are you thinking? What are you thinking?
1: I, well, you know, I'm glad it's nice to have a distraction, but at the same time, I just I'm just like a 60 game season. Everybody has to worry about getting sick. Uh, there's stormtroopers in the streets. We have a pandemic going on. Um, I just don't. I feel like there's other things we need to be figuring out right now, and I yeah. I can't get my heart into it like I want to. You know that that being said, I I I listened to a few games on the radio this weekend and that was enjoyable to hear the announcers again uh it was very interesting to me that based upon the play they would have the crowd react accordingly and i actually want to look into the science of this is that do they have someone doing that live or based upon where the ball goes is there some kind of like sensor that that knows that okay that's a home run it better sound like a home run a home run crowd or uh you know loose ball uh, behind the behind the catcher, oh, he's stealing third. You no, know, are these things automatically triggering these crowds, or is someone doing it
0: live? I think someone's doing it live. I think someone's at a soundboard and just pulling in drops. Because uh, from what I understand, they're pulling the crowd noise in from uh, a uh, MLB the Show, uh, the the game that you can find on your PlayStation Four. Um, and I think Fox even put in like virtual fans, uh, which was also kind of strange. Yeah, they look like um,
1: <laughs> they look like. And, and, and there's only like 10 models and they keep cutting and pasting and it looks like a, a battle scene from 2001 uh, movies. That's
2: a dream job for me, just to be the guy that makes that the the fake crowd. Oh God, I'd have so much fun with that. But. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, well,
0: that's it for sports. That's, that's all you're ever going to get. Goodbye, sports. We'll miss you. Until our offshoot podcast hits where we force Eric into learning all about Um, MLB, NBA, the NFL, and maybe the NHL uh, in our sports hole.
1: (laughs) Uh, Can't wait to edit. Each episode is going to end with Eric being pop quizzed off what we just talked about for two hours an episode.
0: It's uh, (laughs)
1: going to be fantastic.
2: Every wrong answer
0: gets a punch. It's a punch right in the kisser. (laughs) Put you back in the Skinner box. Um all right so we've gotten some housekeeping out of the way so uh what was David Bowie doing in the uh in the fall of 1977 Eric was tell me what's going uh, on there
2: our, our boy DB was doing a lot he was doing a lot you know like we said he he already put out two albums that year starting with The Idiot following it up with Lowe, talked about both and both are i mean i think you know for the most part we agree are all-timers or at least uh you know important works, and uh, it just it, it just seems to to be like you know it was just nonstop work, and you know Bowie was in Berlin with Iggy Pop as we've mentioned before as an attempt to escape the the trappings of being a rock star in L.A., which really is you know meant his cocaine dependency, and uh, he did not fully kick it. You know, in his time in Berlin, Steve, you said a, a couple pages from uh, a book, and and I've seen this before. That there, you know, there were, he was still dabbling up in, and and probably into the the Let's Dance era, but. Um,
1: yeah, but I mean, I, I think it was like uh, he. He kicked his addiction, and every couple of years, maybe at a party, he did some blow. Right, but he wasn't he wasn't crawling up the wall for yeah yeah yeah, and I, I'm sure it was a, and and those anecdotes specifically say it specifically was like around Let's Dance when he had a couple of parties, he, he 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 had a little fun. And I mean, look at look at him during that era. Look at the way he was dressed, his persona, chairman of the board. Uh, if anything, it was method act Yeah. So. I, I,
2: and you probably don't you know hang out with disco king Niall Rogers without uh, you know dipping your toes in a little tooting common. So yeah. I... <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, no, during during this Berlin during this Berlin period, yeah, he got he got he got off. He got off the cocaine habit. He said it took him two years to really get get off of it, get off the addiction. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't he wasn't sober as a priest. He was still drinking occasionally during this period. And I think that actually informs some of the lyrics on this album. Yeah,
2: and that's and that's common. You'll hear about you know some people that can't go cold turkey will kind of fade out of one addiction to something slightly less dangerous, um, which I guess is that's up for that's that's up for debate as well but yeah he he definitely got more into the drink uh during his in his berlin time so when they were in low uh they weren't actually in berlin for low if you remember they were in a hotel i think in france when they got to berlin they started um they got to move into the it's called the was it the studio the wall at the Hansa at the wall is that what it's called yeah the the recording
1: studio. yes han it's han hanza at the wall uh and decades later you too recorded an album there because they were inspired by heroes
2: yeah and it's uh you know it was right there um uh you know as far as close to east berlin as you can get being in west berlin um you can see the wall there they, they you could look out of the windows and see um you know guard soldiers on the other side um you know looking at them through binoculars and um apparently you know there was tension in the air but that uh, that kind of uh inspired the band a little bit and they had pl- they had a room this time like in the hotel it was basically they were they were making, making like a basement record in the hotel they were just kind of they had a little four track and did what they were going to do but here they uh they they had rooms they could spread out they could you know breathe a little bit and um they got to work uh as far as the studio band um Quite sure uh, it's the same dudes from Low, but now they had a new guitarist, Steve, and I, I, I'm sure you've got the, the lineup right in front of you there.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the Low players who are also the station-to-station station players, and that's David Bowie and vocals, keyboards, guitars, saxophone, quite a bit of saxophone, tambourine, and I can hear that tambourine, and uh, the Koto on one track, as well as production. Ryan Eno synthesis keyboards, guitar treatments. Uh, Robert Fripp is who you're referring to on lead guitar. And he leads an unmistakable touch to this record that will come up time and time again as we discuss it tonight. Carlos Alomar, George Murray, Dennis Davies, our friends that are going to be with David until Scary Monsters. And that's a rhythm guitar, bass guitar, and uh, percussion. Tony Visconti, a percussion, backing vocals, production. Antonia Mass. Also, on backing vocals and maybe a little bit more, Tony Visconti. That's right. Bowen <laughs> Thurston is an engineer on this one, and uh, a person named Masayoshi Sukata took that wonderful photo. That's the cover of the album. Quite an
0: iconic photo, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah. I mean it's 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 a great photo, and I mean that's why they used it for the next day. I think they're going to use they're going to repurpose any photo from his. Catalog that would be the one, the awesome photo. If I if I ever buy a a music related poster and frame it again in my life, now that I am a man that's almost forty, it would probably be that that uh that heroes cover. That's a good one. You can put you can put that in your house and respect yourself. Still, I think.
2: Yeah, we're sorry. Robert Fripp got a call from Brian Eno. Um, Right, they had done some albums together. Uh, Specifically, they did No Pussyfooting. In 1973. and um, Always love that yeah. title. Always love that yeah. title. And if you haven't listened to them, their work together is pretty great. Um, it's, 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 it's rather enjoyable. There's very little from Brian Eno in the 70s that I don't enjoy. Um,
1: you know what's funny is there's very little from Robert Fripp at all that I don't enjoy. But I've never listened to either No Pussing Footing or uh, Evening Star. Have you listened to both those, Eric? Um, I
2: think I've heard No Pussyfooting, but I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't explored, uh, the, the, the other one, but I
1: will because it's, it's, it's pretty great. Mark, have you listened to either of the Eno Fripp albums? You know, I haven't
0: yet. Um, I've
1: heard they're really good. You know, with Eno, you got to be, you got to be in a space,
2: you got to be in a, in a mood, uh, for that, that kind of ambient journey. But, you know, in the 70s, he wasn't pure, not always pure ambient. He, he wasn't afraid to rock a little bit here and there and, um, and uh, just do that kind of art rock thing.
1: I'm looking forward to not feeling, and that—that's one thing about this project. When I was going on and on earlier about being locked into an artist for what felt like years, but I guess it took us just about a year. I'm proud of us again. Um, I feel like I'll have more room to explore other music again. Uh, I mean, I have been listening to David Bowie nonstop for the last year. That's stupid. None of us have. But uh, when you don't have what feels like homework constantly. Um, and I, I apologize that this, this, this podcast was never homework, but there were times where I would have been like, all right, I got to listen to this album five times this weekend because I have the podcast coming up. Anyhow, that will still happen in some, in some respect, a different respect, but anyhow, I look forward to exploring some of the stuff that came up during the podcast that I never had time to get to. For example, the Eno Frips I'm writing down right now. I got to get those pretty soon and check them out.
2: It's okay for you to say some of this was homework. I'm pretty sure the Tin Machine albums was like the fucking three hours of Lord of the Rings where it's just Frodo and Sam like stuck in the barren wastelands.
1: That's (laughs) a funny comparison you make because like I did just rewatch those uh, in the last few weeks, few weeks back. And what I used to be able to do in one day took me three weeks. And um, that's about how long time uh, felt when you did listen to one tin machine album so that's a good comparison <laughs> um, that'll be a good good question for the next episode which albums were like homework write that write that All down right there. doing it um not much more to say about this but their process
2: was definitely um it was a little bit more spontaneous and but it was it was full band so they would they would get the the instrument the um the the rhythm section really um and and carlos alomar to to record um, the backing track, and they would oftentimes do it in one take. Um, and then, uh, when actually, when Robert Fripp joined, his was much quicker. He showed up one night, middle of the night. He came up and just plugged into a keyboard. That's what this guitar treatments that Eno was doing. They just worked all night on um, these like guitar drones and, and backing sounds and riffs that would just come in and come out. And then, of course, uh, then later he would play over the whole song on those songs that he's heavily featured. Um, And then, uh, yeah, and Bowie would come in and do his vocals and, you know, spend an hour or two on a song and and it would be in the can. So uh, it was it it seemed like a leisurely process.
1: Fripp came in and did everything in about six hours. And uh, David Bowie was quoted as saying the only premise he gave him was to play with total abandonment and in a way that he would never consider playing on his own albums. I said, play like Albert King. And he would look puzzled for a few moments and then he'd go in and try his damnedest to get somewhere near it but it would come out his way. So things like Joe the Lion, were him having a bash at the blues, he was great like that. He really got into the swing of it. And uh, yeah, it's almost like David Bowie was kind of giving uh, Robert Fripp. It's almost like David Bowie was taking some of the abuse that Eno was giving him with that oblique Sessions nonsense and projecting it upon him with how he asked him to play the guitar. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, the, the initial recording, the initial recordings took about the, the first two days and, uh, they, their second takes weren't nearly as good. So they stuck with all the original takes and, um, yeah, those scratches, if you will, became what they, they built this, this album off of.
2: Yeah. Th- and those, you know, that, this is one of his, you know, I, one of his strongest backing bands and it just shows you how they were working like a working like a clock. Um, and that's why he could put out four albums in a year. <laughs> they knew what they were doing.
1: Yeah. And apparently I, I don't know, you know, the, the, the low album, you kind of get the sense of, uh, uh, you know, Bowie specifically said he wanted to retreat and start to de- decompress and get in touch with this human side again. Heroes has an energy to it that it's hard to put your finger on, but they already did say that due to the atmosphere, uh, there's times it was frightening and, and gray. And you kind of see that. But in the recording of the album, I guess all the guys were having a great time. And um, Brian, Eno remember just a lot of just a lot of joking all the time. Which makes sense because uh, you know Dave Bowie's a pretty funny guy when he wants to be, and these guys are all comfortable with each other at this point. Nobody was meeting each other for the first time, and even with having Robert Fripp get there, they've all met him in the past, I'm sure. So uh, it seems like it was a pretty pretty fun recording session.
2: Uh, according to accounts, yeah, Bowie was was at top of his game the whole time. He was just enjoying himself. It was uh, it was just a very just jovial experience for the for the for the team. So.
1: What I, what I what I find amazing is that you know we've talked about yeah, Bowie did take inspiration from Iggy Pop with the you know Iggy Pop would just kind of walk up to the microphone and start singing and Bowie you know with his uh, cut up lyric techniques and you know he's it, it's just it's amazing that on an album like this the lyrics were true yeah the lyrics and actually the the vocals and the vocal stylings were an afterthought. There, or not an afterthought, but they were the last piece of the puzzle, and they were done on the spot. And for the majority of these songs, I think everything fits in its right place quite well. It's pretty, just goes to show, again, like you just said, Eric, that they, uh, they're all at the top of their game here. Everything's fitting together incredibly well, even though so much of it is being come up with right there. It's uh, pretty wild.
0: Yeah. In terms of those cut-up lyrics, I'm wondering if uh, someone, maybe Tony Visconti, administered like a, I don't know, a cognitive test? So, like, person, <laughs> woman, man, camera, TV.
1: <laughs> Mark, that's interesting. Can you do that again in that same
0: order? You know, I actually I can't. You know, so uh, I I I picked the snake, uh, which I thought was an elephant, and uh, I when they asked me to answer that question again, I said TV, camera, man, person, woman. After you know that was obviously not the correct order, so. You know who is sharp as attack.
1: Well, you don't get any bonus points then, Mark, because they give you bonus points if you get it in order. I didn't
0: know. I don't know oh, if you do that. Oh, man. Damn. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of just cut up lyrics, I mean, uh, maybe that was the, one of the strategies that Brian Eno was trying to do. We'll never know. <laughs> I think that's exact. I think, yeah, Burroughs wrote that cognitive test.
2: And we're all better for it, so. Absolutely.
1: I'd like to see Brian know in the current,
0: for <laughs> sure. I mean, yes. yeah, old sourpuss, you bet. He would be the minister of um, synthesizers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm ready to get into this, guys, if you are. Well, unless, oh, wait, we got to talk about, uh. How was, how was this bad boy received?
0: So, uh, it it hit like an atom bomb, uh, meaning that it made a quite a lasting impact at the time, and then it resonated throughout history as being a very influential record. RCA Records, um, the label that put this out, market it as, uh, there's old wave, there's new wave, and then there's David Bowie. Um, a man unto himself. That's great. Whoever whoever came up with that, to know a race. that's clearly you take the weekend, uh, the afternoon off, get yourself something nice to do. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, at the time it received extremely positive, uh, positive critical reception, uh, receiving album of the year accolades uh, towards the end of the year. Um, you know, John Lennon went on record saying that when he was making double fantasy, he wanted to make an album just as good, if not better than heroes Um, Rolling Stone, uh, really gave it to Brian Eno for his contributions. The village voice critic, Robert, uh, uh, he was a little less receptive, uh, quote unquote, um, to Eno's instrumentals. And he preferred the back half of low versus the back half of, uh, heroes. Um, I probably would tend to agree, but maybe we'll get there as we go through the tracks. um, but pretty much all across the board, we're seeing 5 out of 5s, 10 out of 10s. Uh, it, it was seen as a masterpiece in a classic album pretty much upon its release, and it's only grown in its notoriety. Um, and commercially, it was probably the best-selling out of the Berlin Trilogy as well. So um, the monster hit of Heroes and um, some of the weirdness, apparently, just it was a challenging record for a challenging time, and his fans and critics really appreciate what was going on. I would say it was like the OK Computer of its day. I mean, there was so much ink spilled about Radiohead's OK Computer that it was pretty much uh, the record that saved rock and roll, quote unquote. And, you know, this is the one that apparently um, just established David Bowie as just an artist with so much creativity and and scope. Um, But we'll we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it to see if it holds up to some of our our personal favorites.
1: A couple of things before we get into the track by track, I do want to call out that the final mixes on this one after they got done doing all the primary mixes in Berlin. They were done at the, the Mountain Studios in Montreux, um, and that was the first time that he went there. And if I recall correctly, he worked at that studio many, many times afterwards, correct?
2: That studio would, every time he got out it pulled him back in, that's, that's where he did his 80s, his, all of his 80s mixing, yeah. and um, a little past that too. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, as far as critical reception goes to Mark's point, uh, Enemy named it the album of the year in 1977. It's a little little feather in his cap. I'm sure he really cared. And uh, for this album, he, he, he did a lot more um, promotion than he did for Low. Uh, he did a lot of interviews. They filmed the video for Heroes, which is a fantastic video. And incredibly simple. We'll talk about it more when we talk about the song Heroes. Um, He did the the Bing Crosby Christmas special that that came out around this time. He uh, almost did an episode of The Muppets, but it didn't quite come together, which is unfortunate. Uh, It was on the top of the pops. Uh, Just in general, a lot more production or promotion. And also, they released the single in French and German as well. They really, to Mark's point, pushing that Heroes song. No, they, they knew they had something special with that song. Oh,
2: yeah. Awesome. Well, are we ready to dive in? I think we should. Yes, I do believe we are. Track one, Beauty and the Beast.
0: Tale as old as time. All right. So that was beauty and the beast. Uh, if you ask me, that's uh, an amazing album opener. It ramps up, uh, as I believe it was said somewhere on our favorite blog, that it sounds like Bowie turning into the incredible Hulk before our very ears. Yes. Um, which I agree like that ramp up. And then you've got the spronky, uh, guitar, just kind of going back and forth. Um, Everything about this song, everything fits in ex- exactly the right place, even though it does feel kind of like it's breaking down, but it's being held together by, you know, uh, Elmer's glue and bubblegum. But it just is so fucking great dynamically. Uh, Bowie is bringing an excellent vocal performance. And surprisingly, this was released as the second single after the self titled song. Um, but uh, it's. It's a great song. I love it. Home run. Uh, Eric, tell me what you think.
2: Yeah, I, I love how it starts up with just the you just hear the synths and the noises and everything just starts, you know, uh, it's like trying to trying to turn a turn a lawnmower over. And then once it once it kicks in, it's it's basically like you hear growth. Um, all the the poppy songs on low, um, which are like kind of funky. But also kind of like synthie krautrock, you hear that. But um, it, you feel like they they figured out the production, so um, it's a little like you can hear everything a little bit better. Every little piece fits. Um, and and I mean, yeah, Bowie goes right right into it, and the lyrics of this are bonkers. But um, you know, essentially, this is how I read it, right? So. And I, I, also read a lot of other people's interpretations and, you know, they believe there's something about the two-sided, the, 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 double-edged sword of, of, uh, you know, drugs, um, as far as, uh, you know, like his lyrics, weaving, weaving down the Byroad, singing the song, that's my kind of high road gone wrong. Um, kind of an inevitable crash, um, something in the night, something in the day, nothing is wrong, darling, but something's in the way. Um and then you also get like like what he likes to do he sets a theme and then he pulls stuff that's not even related he's talking about there's protest there's something in the air there's slaughter in the air protest in the wind um someone could get skinned um, the way i was reading it was kind of like uh, the beauty and the beast is like the di- you know dichotomy of of us all and um but if you're if you have a uh, uh, if you're if you have a dark spot inside of you it doesn't you know sober or not it doesn't matter um it's gonna kind of taint everything it's gonna taint the air and uh i feel like that came up a bit in the lyrics um one of my favorite little asides is uh tony viscani's favorite thing to say in the studio when he got frustrated was someone fuck a priest i don't well i don't know why but he used to shout that so that's uh someone fetch a priest that that whole line comes from Tony Viscani's uh he always would say it he he would apparently shout it constantly um and so uh I like it um and I I wanted to believe me I wanted to be good I wanted no distractions like every boy should um just kind of that's where he is in his life as far as I mean that's very very a literal self-reflection right there so it goes back and forth between that and just kind of the kind of the dark half that, that we may all have. And uh, I like it. I like the 12-inch extended version better. Got about another minute and a half to the song and just lets you really, that groove just gets under your skin just that much more. So I prefer that version. Um, but uh, what a great opener. And just sonically it fits with low, it fits with the whole Berlin sound he's doing, even the stuff with Iggy Pop. It really fits, um, but you can tell they've really mastered some of their techniques. It's great. Steven.
1: Yes, I'd I'd say that right off the bat, the album tells you that, yes, this is a continuation of what we were doing, but we're giving the band a little more. And I think this song does a good job of that. It just seems more fleshed out to me, while not even remotely abandoning what they were doing before, just uh, using that roadmap and having more drivers, if you will. and you have that sound of, like, Bowie leveling up or ramping up in the start. I, I You've got him, you know, doing that little vocal workout. But then there's also, like, some of that Jerry Lee Lewis piano pounding going on as it builds up. Uh, It's just that Jerry Lee Lewis piano pounding is going to come back on this album a few times. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an element they stick in there right from the start. And I think that's cool because... So much of it is icy and synthesized and processed, but then there is a very organic piano element that comes on this album uh occasionally um, I like on this track that Bowie uses like three different vocal stylings um he uses the like the you know weaving down a byroad singing a song like that's sardonic cold Bowie, and then during the uh you can't say no to the beauty and the beast. It's kind of a, more of a spastic Bowie. But then during that one section you talked about, Eric, that I wanted to believe me. I wanted to be good. Um, he, he switches his tone up a bit. And also just for that section of the song, Dennis Davies, uh, changes the pace of the song just for that section. And it becomes even more danceable than it already is just for that, that one little bridge verse there. Um, That's pretty cool. And yeah, to the pace of this song, it is a very strangely, and this is going to happen on this album a few times, danceable song. Uh, you, you could, you could get in the dance floor to this song that, you know, that it's, it's catchy. It's, uh, I could see why this was a single, even though it was a very bold choice for a a single. I got, you you hear this on the radio. I don't know what you, you know, what you listening to. It's a, it that's it, davis <laughs> college radio station that's probably the only place you're going to hear it the eagle is not going to play beauty and the beast <laughs> that's uh, yeah
0: that's not happening
1: but uh yeah and, he, and he, yeah but still buried in there you know alomar's got like a pretty killer riff and on top of it Fripp is doing a lot of what they brought him in to do he's doing the full unleashed atari noodling Especially towards the end of the of the song, it's uh, really going on in the background there. If you're listening to it, it's uh yeah, it's uh, everything about it fits together. It's 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 the full band gets something to do. It still has the production values of low in some of the abstract instrumentation and uh, spontaneity of low, but it just sounds to me like more of a actual song. It's a good good album opener. One thing about this this I'll just get this out of the way Uh, because I don't want to forget to say it at the end, is that for me, and it started with this track, uh, whenever this album clicked for me, I I owned this album for years. Uh, Let's do an aside, actually. I owned this album for years, I bought it during the Gotta Catch Them All Rico era, and I listened to it all the way through quite a few times. I listened to Heroes, the title track, probably a billion times. But this album is one of the closest things to me that's like a 3D painting, to where you can look at it a billion times and not really see what it's doing. But then when it clicks for you, you can't unsee it. And that's how a lot of this album is for me sonically, including this song. I used to think this song was just kind of like, ah, Beauty and the Beast, that's a weird opener. And one day, it just, something snapped in my place and I realized how great of a, a song this is. I think this album overall is kind of like that. It's Once your brain processes this album correctly, it's, it's got a lot of secrets and things for you to find out. And it sounds a lot more normal than you might have thought before. To that, uh, to that we can get into more of that at the end. But I am curious, when did you guys first, first hear this album?
0: Relatively uh, the same path that you took uh, when you're just starting to uh, really get enamored with David Bowie. Um, you're looking for his uh, touchstone albums, essentially. And this one, unfortunately, didn't come through the used section too often. Um, so I think I may have purchased this one brand new um, as I was just collecting them all, essentially. and. Uh, For me, it was an instant love. I I, I think that the whole album hangs really well together, as we'll kind of talk and summarize at the end. Um, One thing in particular about this particular track is that uh, it also starts pretty much uh, rocking, a little bit more rocking than what it was on low. Um, And I do like the dynamics of the Atari Mm -hmm. Spronky guitar uh, from Robert Fripp. And then you've got the synthes, uh the sci-fi synthesizers from uh, Brian mm-hmm. Eno, and uh, it's just it's the the perfect melding of uh, technology and man.
2: Yes. So this one, I feel like I didn't buy initially when I was buying stuff, and then when I got together with Heather, she had it, and I know I listened to it a few times there, and. Um, yeah, I just kind of always had a vague likeness for it. And I know like beauty and the beast and I know heroes and I know some of the big tracks. Um, but you know, I, I'll be honest. I, I, while it's been around and I know I've listened to it before, this is the first time I've given it the full discerning ear that it deserves.
1: So, yeah. So would you, just so with Heather though? I mean, you, she owned it before you, uh, when you guys were first dating though, you had with her, you had to pretend that you knew it like the back of your hand. Like, Oh yes, of course. Well, heroes. Our new heroes. I'm not,
3: a, I'm
2: not a fucking dumbass living under a rock, yes. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yes. Moss garden. <laughs> oh God. You know, this was inspired by, uh, the, um, that, the, my- the, samurai clan, uh, uh, Koyabashi. You, you knew that of
1: course, right? Yeah.
2: That's me. That's me BSing to my wife. And then she fell in love with me. So it worked.
1: So yeah, that poor woman. All right. Well, Beauty and the Beast and a few other things. Onward to track two, Joe the Lion. Joe! So that was a little bit of Joe the Lion. Joe the Lion does a trick that I love albums uh, that do this. Uh, listeners that keep track of what I say, and that's the best listeners, might remember on Scary Monsters how I think that Scary Monsters has a perfect opener and then it has a perfect track two. But track two, if you really wanted to, could also be the opener. And I say the same thing about Joe the Lion. I think Joe the Lion's a great track two. It picks up where Beauty Beauty and the Beast left off of in a good way, ramps things up a little bit, but could also be track one if it really wanted. Mark, what do you think about Joe the Lion? Uh,
0: Surprisingly the same thing. Um, It almost feels that uh, Beauty and the Beast and Joe the Lion could have been like one monster melody. Uh, It's just, it it fits so perfectly right next to each other. Um, And it does kind of give you that, uh, coming into the song, pretty much almost already started. and I, upon my research, and I'm sure Eric will um, wax poetic, so I won't take anything away, but just how he developed the lyrics for this was very much in line with uh, what we had talked about in our last B-side, which is uh, Lust for Life. Um, but yeah, this, this song, uh, it's funny because the imagery of Beauty and the Beast, and then you got Joe the Lion, you got still that uh, that beast sort of theme coming through here. Um, in terms of what this song is about I'll also leave that to Eric because I'm sure he's got some copious notes again don't want to take anything away but um, it's a very catchy song um, you've got really soaring guitar work from Robert Fripp uh, and it's just still another, another fucking home run like back to back it's just how crazy this album is starting out so, uh, so strong go ahead Eric thanks
2: um, yeah, this, the song starts with, um, if there's a blues song on this album, it's definitely this song. Um, the song starts with Fripp, uh, just wailing away over everything else. Um, you know, and, 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 just to, just to set myself up for, uh, for, uh, absolute torture and, and beratement from Steven. And, uh, I will say if there, this album has a low point, it's this song for me for my money, but I'd still give it a B plus. I would still give Joe the lion a B plus as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think there, there's a ton going on in the song. Um, and sonically, it's very interesting if you can piece it apart. I, before I said that this album, they feel, you feel like they figured out their production and you can really isolate everything cool that's happening. I find it, this to be the most difficult track to do that. And as a fan of like lo-fi and punk, like that's usually not a problem for me. just, this one just feels the most muddy, if that makes sense. Um, uh, and
0: Bowie's vocal perform. I'll interrupt you for just one second, yeah, yeah. if you don't mind. You yeah. can get right back to it. But if there's any song on this that seems to telegraph scary monsters, for me, it's, it's this one.
2: Yeah, interesting. Interesting. And I can see that. And, I, I, and once again, I'm not, I'm not trashing this song. It's Like I said, it, it, it's still a B-plus song. It's just the rest of this album... I think is, is much more elevated. Um, one thing I like is, and I would not have made this connection if it wasn't for the pushing ahead of the Dame website, but the connection to artist Chris burden, who is referenced in the outside storyline in the lighter notes. And I thought that was just made up. Um, it's a guy that, you know, in the, in the, in the lighter notes, when they're talking about the history of art crime, it was a guy that basically paid a, collaborator to kill him and and bolt him to a volkswagen i i you know and i thought that was just made up but apparently that is something that really happened in 1971 um not necessarily killed him but um he was crucified on the hood of a volkswagen uh and and shot with a 22 rifle and this song is about essentially what bowie wanted outside to be about which is like when you know this very nietzsche like humans don't need God anymore. So what do they do? They, 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 uh, with art, they can play God. They can, you can create whole universes through that. You don't need God anymore. And that's what essentially this song is about. And I do like that. I like the connection to outside with that. Um, some points when he's singing, it seems like he's lost the thread a little bit and he's just kind of shouting out lyrics and there's no real melody or rhythm to it. It's probably intentional. Um, but I don't think it, it services the song very well. um there's a few little bridges where that happens in in the song um but uh that doesn't change the fact that it's a lot of fun. The backing band is doing great and fripp fripps uh uh this is probably the Albert King song on the album. I would have to assume uh fripp's bluesy bluesy riffs are 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 amazing mm-hmm. so once again, b plus song. If I had a a valley on this album, it's this song, but I still love it. I would never skip it. Yeah, Fripp's
1: doing two things on this track I like. That opening. (laughs) I did not do it justice, but you know what part I'm talking about. But then the part you're talking about, Eric,
3: there.
1: Which later in the song is fleshed out with some uh, catcalls, some, yeah. Yeah, which I always like some good vocalizations there. Um, the, the l- one lyric that stands out to me is what you're referencing to, Eric Nail me to my car and I'll tell you who you are. That's uh, that's dark. Um, very strange. This was, yeah, the uh, the, the prelude to outside. I had no idea, but the proof's in the pudding there. Um, I yeah, I think it's a, it's a great song. I'm a big fan of the uh. Couple times in this track, back to Mark's point about the beast uh, motif. I'll go back to the fact that they really should have been on the Muppets, like they said they were going to be. Because on this one, there's that backup vocal, which is on uh, one of the songs in the Idiot. I, I mentioned there's a high pitched backup vocal, which cracked me up. On this one, there's that Joe the Lion. Like you got you guys know, you no, know guys right, a, little, that?
2: a little a little a little a little fiery, a little <laughs> oh, chilly what? down backing vocal on this song.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. I mean like like I said, they're having fun in the studio. It sure sounds like it um yeah, this one definitely the iggy pop uh approach to lyrics uh David said that he would you know listen to a section, write some lyrics down quickly, and then just sing along, and then go to the next section and definitely, you could see that on this one um you know Joe the lion, I also thought there's a couple of references on this album that that remind me of alcoholism, not to the point of uh you know. In some of our previous episodes, Eric is always talking about addiction. Oh my God. I can spin the bottle. It'll land in the episode where Eric says it's all about addiction. But uh, on this track, you know, the, the Joe, the lion, you know, Joe, the lion could be, you know, you're, you're Joe and then you drink and then you become the lion or something. I, I don't know. It's uh it's, it's either about that or in art crimes either way. I do like this track. I do like some of the vocal tics he uses on this one. I, the difference between the main verse tone and then those sections where he slips into that it's Monday, that really dull tone kind of reminds me of a, a Fade to More song uh, called RV, where a lot of the song is just Mike Patton singing about being bored with his life living in an RV. And then the choruses are kind of more soaring. I like it when an artist takes two different perspectives, one extremely dull and mon- monotonous against actual singing to get a point across do a good job here with that and uh yeah again they let robert fripp go wild in the closing of the track it's uh i'll never have a problem with that good stuff
2: catchy uh did you guys listen to the the 1991 remix of the song no yeah uh it's a little bit they actually they actually make it a little bit more muddy they um they mike the the drums are are wired through a harmonizer on it um this was another one of those uh the Rico discs for this album i guess for the berlin trilogy came out during tin machine era um so uh uh this kind of sounds like um somebody trying to mix this like a tin machine song i don't know it the original is much better i don't know what did you think
1: mark
0: Yeah, it's the same impression that I got. Uh, The remixer was a guy named Mark Richard. um, And I I think his main intention was to make it sound like it was recorded in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, in that kind of tin machine style. Something that Bob Dylan tends to do when you go see him play live, whatever style of music that he's playing, he generally puts his classics through that organ grinder, whatever he's up to these days. And I think that this is just one of those things because, you know, Bowie had said that he's going to stop playing a lot of his old classic songs when Tim Machine came around. And perhaps he was like, well, I'll just run it through the mill and make it sound like I'm uh, doing it now in my new sound. So it's pointless. It's completely pointless. I'm not a fan of it. Not, not as good as uh, Fame 90
3: with Queen Latifah.
0: <laughs> or what could have been with TLC being on Thursday's Child. It's true. It's true. Well, exactly.
1: Hey, before we move on to one of the, the uh, greatest songs ever written, can I, can I tell you guys about something I, I just read on the internet while I was really engaged uh, listening to you talk? Yes. Go for it, Steve. <laughs> uh there's this quote from old Vulture article with Lou Reed. And they ask Lou Reed, Sirius is impending merger with XM is anticipated to boost earnings. Do you own any stock in the company? Lou Reed's response, What are you? A fucking asshole? I'm here telling you the truth about music and you want to know if I have stock in the fucking radio? You fucking piece <laughs> of shit.
0: What did I do to deserve this? Oh lovable Lou. I'm making friends.
2: Oh yeah always always (laughs) well we better we better clear the table because we're about to we're about to have a banquet with the next song
0: and that song would be called heroes thanks mark i forgot the name of it
2: yeah
1: you guys know that the the first time i heard this song was for this podcast <laughs> that's I,
0: incredible that's incredible That is outside the
1: <laughs> i
3: i i actively believe
0: <laughs> avoid- well, since you've actively avoided it and you've had Virgin Ears, Steve, why don't you lead off our discussion on the song Heroes? I actually, that's, that's a, that was a lie. Um,
1: I, don't, I don't remember the first time I heard Heroes. It is a song with such enormous weight and presence that it feels like it's been around all my life. I definitely know that uh, when Mark and I saw Godzilla, and the Wallflowers version of it came (laughs) playing during the credits, which was also a single that summer, uh, I probably started thinking, you know what? I think I want to go listen to the real version of this song, Um, which is interesting because around that same summer, M2 was also playing the original video quite a bit, and that sticks out in my mind. The, the, The video and this song are linked quite a bit whenever I listen to this song, which isn't a problem because all the video is, is David Bowie standing in a dark room with some backlighting, I believe. And he's singing the song. That's all the video is. Yeah. Do you guys remember the first time you, you, you became familiar? I mean, Eric, you were saying, you you know, you're familiar. You knew of this album, but Eric, do you remember the first time you might've heard heroes or acknowledged his presence? The title track? Uh, Acknowledged it, yes, because you know, one of my
2: earlier listens of the album I I didn't connect the song, the album title to the song. And then when it came on I was like, "Oh shit, I feel like I've known this song my whole life." Um and then a, a, every time I've listened to it it's just if there is one song that he's done that appears to have influenced the future of music, I feel like it's this song. It's just a uh, it's 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 noisy but it's catchy. It's, it's basically like creating alternative rock. I probably said that before about another song of his, but <laughs> this one, I mean it <laughs> creating alternative rock in, 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 a, in a, in a six minute track. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember my first time. It just, it's always, I feel like it's always been circling my dome somewhere.
1: Mark, do you, have, do you have a
0: similar impression that this song is just always there? It really is always there. I mean, my f- very first time that I heard it was most likely on a, a Best Of collection. Um, it was probably Changes Bowie. Um, and it's it's an iconic song for a reason. Um, in any given day, it can absolutely bring tears to my eyes. Um, his, his vocal performance at, towards the end where he's really just screaming his guts out or singing his guts out with, you... And you will be queen. Uh, uh, so so good. I, uh, everything about this song, uh, like to Eric's point, it did make its mark on how influential. I mean, if you just look at like Moby's output, uh, his guitar tone that he whenever he does play guitar, um, he he tends to use that same guitar tone that Fripp is using here. Um, sp- you could certainly hear that on his single, um, off the post play album, which was called 18. Uh, his first single for that was we are all made of stars. And it really does sound like this song. Um, another little fun tidbit is uh, when Dave Gahan, a uh, lead singer from Depeche Mode, um, he was basically discovered by singing a cover version of the song by Vince Clark, who went on to be one of the founders of Depeche Mode and then went on to, you know, do a and, uh, I, th- I think he also did Yaz too, or Yazoo. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Eric,
1: they, upstairs at Eric's
2: Depeche mode covered this song too, like, uh, two years ago, right?
1: Yeah, they did. We'll get to the, uh, we'll do at the end of our talk of this song, we'll do a covers roundup.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, it's absurd. This song is, it, it, it Well, I was just going to say it's kind of crazy because this song can be so exploited uh, because of its emotional weight and what it's about. Like it can be played over commercials and, and any other song would be in danger of just losing its importance over over saturation. But somehow when you isolate it and you just listen to it, you think about what it's about. You think about where you are in life while you're listening to it. It just it. It it just doesn't falter. It still stays strong. It's crazy.
1: Well, I, Eric, I got I got two notes. I got two notes to speak to that. Is it two of my notes? One, I I I wrote down that this song is one you can mold to fit your situation, no matter what it is. To your point, and also, it strangely it strikes the balance between being sad and at the same time triumphant, like few songs do. You can. You can pick which mood you want this song to affect. It's insane.
2: Well, and that's what, that's what it's about, really, is it's, it's, it's not as triumphant as it sounds, because let's be honest, the music is triumphant as hell. It's three guitar lines. Steve, you, you, you sent us that Tony Visconti video of him talking about the making where they isolate each track, and the fact that it starts with a, just a rousing bass line, three guitars over it, and two of those are just drone guitars, like uh, Eno-affected drip licks
1: and then uh, well yeah Fripp, what Fripp was doing what Frip was doing there a lot of people um, mistaken that sound for uh, what an Ebo I believe and no what it is is just Fripp just was looping and looping and Eno was taking loops and they were Fripp was playing against his own loops and then Tony Visconti was layering those three loops on top of each other and like to your point earlier when you're saying influencing future music I think the edge took a ton of his echo effect from inspiration to good for good cause. I think the edge is awesome at that. A lot of that delay work he does. You could totally see him getting inspired by this track.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the song too, is like, it's a lot of images, very much inspired by the, by the wall that they're at, but not, not just that it's, it's, it's basically about a doomed, a doomed relationship. Um, a situation where, you know, there's not necessarily going to be a happy ending, but if you just live in the moment, and you live with love, you can overcome the oppression just for one day. Like maybe, and but if you're living day by day, maybe that's what you have to do every day. Uh, I I just appreciate that. It's I I always like a cynical positive song. It's positive, no doubt, but it's not like it's not like painting the world with a pastel brush there's still there's still uh challenges there's no answer it's but you know living with love just in that moment can can defeat your uh your challenges briefly and um the uh apparently um and this is like rock and roll lore this is this is well known at this point but i'm not i'm not going to be blowing any minds here but um, apparently, he, Bowie was having a real problem coming up with lyrics. Um, what, what would happen, though, is actually Bowie didn't do any of his lyrics with the band there. Um, when they were done, he sent them all home. And it was him, it was Coco Schwab, it was Tony Visconti, and it was one of the. Um, Tony Visconti was having an affair at this time with uh, one of their backup singers. Um, and her name was,
0: let me just. Antonia Mass. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, and, and, and they were in the studio. So at some point Bowie is like, like, all right, I just need some time alone. And for Bowie, that means time with me and Coco. <laughs> so he sent, he sent, uh, Tony and Amar and Antonia off, but they could still see him through the window and they just kind of watched him go up against this cold Berlin wall and share an intimate moment together right there. And that was the inspiration that they needed was, um, was that so? Um, well, the song's about a lot more than just that, it, it is about you know basically getting through serious, you know, oppression, um, through whatever means that we have, and oftentimes that is that is love, and and um, and then also using that moment too, which I which I think is
1: beautiful. I'd like to seize on that for one second. What is that line? And we kiss like nothing would fall, and we kiss like nothing. What is that line? It's saying we we kissed like nothing before. We kiss like nothing would fall, something to that effect, and uh yeah, that was. You're 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 right that he he was inspired by uh you know, being a peeping tom, at Tony, and um, oh <laughs> oh Jiminy Anto- Antonio. Uh, what was her name? <laughs> Antonia. Antonia, and uh yeah, that I, I implore all listeners to look up. I'll I've already posted it on the the Facebook before, but. Our, our really robust Facebook page. But um, that clip of Tony Visconti talking about making this song, he goes into how they did the layering. He goes into how they were grabbing uh, random tins around uh, the studio for percussion. Um, it's just he isolates vocal tracks so you can hear him. It's great. He goes into that, though, that, that inspiration for that lyric. And when Tony's telling or when yeah, when Tony's telling it, yeah, he went down, he kissed her, he came back, and they said, we saw you down there. And that's that's what they 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 use for that inspiration of that lyric that didn't. But that didn't come out for years. Back when the song originally was written, David just said he saw like a, a couple kissing down there and it was because Tony was just getting out of his marriage and he didn't want to blow Tony up. So uh, that was a a open secret until until recently
2: it Was the first documented moment of bros before hoes.
0: A little no. bro code right there. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Uh, but yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, what's funny about that, Eric, is that, um, in addition to that YouTube clip, which is easy to find, what is not easy to find, which I received in the mail two weeks ago from a listener in Brazil, it had no return address. Um, it just said, uh, you know, to SC from TV. Who knows who knows who TV is? Uh, but it's 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 some other tapes for discussions that were recorded between David and Tony from the when they were recording Heroes lyrics, the day of recording those lyrics. And you kind of see, you know, a little bit more of a intimate side of not these men's relationship with these women, but with each other. It's interesting. And I think it's a fitting you know, this is, this is it folks. This is all, this is i uh, I've ran out. I've, uh, I've gone to eBay, Reddit, uh, the dark web, uh, the wet markets where the, uh, COVID allegedly came from. Um, the Placerville swap meet, Pirate Bay, Placerville swap meet, Denios. Um, and I've gotten, I've, I've, I've picked up every scrap of discussion between David and Tony. You could find throughout the life of our podcast. And I certainly hope that someone from the Smithsonian is listening, because I think that uh, these discussions are worthy of being put into the Smithsonian. And this will be the last one that we hear. Let's hear it together.
2: Hey, Dave. Uh, great idea. We're here in Hansa recording. You, you got a little bit of writer's block, and you sent uh, me and Antonia... Out on a on a walk, <laughs> I, I went and got some uh, some ice cream and an ice cream stand, and uh, she went the other way. We walked
1: two to, different. Oh, to oh, oh, really? That way. that's that's where you were, huh? You went an ice cream stand, Tony. Tell me uh, what flavor ice cream.
2: Uh, it, it was uh, fish and chips. I mean, it, it, oh God! It, it
3: <laughs>
1: uh, uh, yes, I, I thought so, Tony. Uh, anyhow, that's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll do what you need to do. Uh, uh, I am having some trouble here. I am trying to work out this verse on heroes. And so, so far, so far, I am so happy with what we've done with you and Brian and the ever amazing Mr. Fripp. Who I hope does things for decades to come, dressed as the little gentleman that he is. But I um, the, I need these 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 verses for heroes. I I just don't have the punch as the song goes on. I mean, we're layering and layering, but you know the I'm looking at these lyrics here, and the uh, I I stare outside and I I wonder about that wall out there, and I've wrote some things down now. Recently, noticing. Some things going on outside. Someone maybe kissing by the wall.
2: I know. No. Okay. Come on. Don't. Please. Don't tell Ethel. Just don't tell Ethel. Okay. I
1: I don't know what you're talking about, but I would like to sing about it. But as I sing, I mean, listen, listen, listen. I I am trying to really emote. Here, I I remember. By the wall, I just i Tony, I don't know what am I missing right now? What am I what can I use? Do you have any suggestions, Tony?
2: Well, oh, yeah, I got a lot of I could pull out my flute. I've got a South American pan flute, a recorder. I got a you know good old-fashioned classical uh, metal one for you. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let me just go get my bag.
1: Mmm you know, we're already getting getting pretty zany on this album. I mean, we haven't gone full oblique uh, challenges now, or whatever the hell Brian calls it, but uh, I don't think any of this will do. Can you just... I mean, when's the last time you sang, Tony? I, I, if I recall correctly, when uh, you were showering at our, uh, our holiday in Monaco, I, I heard you pipe up. I mean... Could you uh, sing along with me on this track, maybe?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a while, I won't lie. It's been, it's been since I was in that band. Uh, Tony and the Junkyard Dogs. And uh, that was the last time I sung, uh, but yay. <coughs> I can do it. Let's yes, try it.
1: Old Tony and the Junkyard Dogs. A true proto-return of Bruno, if you will. Um, all right. Let's give it a go.
3: I, I can't remember, I remember standing by the wall, by the wall, because someone No nothing,
2: before, nothing before. thanks,, uh, you know, I tried to match your singing. If you want, I could do it again and even go more Brooklyn in that accent if you want.
1: no, I, I believe we should keep the Brooklyn, you know, I uh, that's let's be authentic here. There's no reason to try and trick people about what's going on. I mean, there's already enough trickery going on down in the street side, if you know what I'm saying.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Oh boy, I'm blushing.
1: Oh. Well, I'll t- I tell Tony, I tell you what, I tell you what. You, uh, you, you did me this favor here today, singing along with me. We're never gonna talk about what I saw down downstairs in the uh, the alleyway there. I know we've had our ups and downs, our ins and outs, and maybe there'll be some trials and tribulations at weddings and whatnot, but uh, I think right here, this is the testament to when you and I work together, the power of our minds and hearts, and Tony, I think you're a true friend, and I hope until the day I die that you and I continue to work like we did in this studio today.
2: I don't see, I don't see this ever changing, but uh, I mean, it's perfect, perfect match right here, but hey, if it does, uh, we'll find our way back. We'll find our way back like a beacon of friendship.
1: Yes, no matter how many times you ever come crawling to me, smelling of urine and cocaine, I know we will always make magic together.
2: Yes, that's true. Glass houses, Dave. (laughs) Glass-
1: well, wow. <laughs> yes, I know, but I I'm past it, you know. I'm, I you're the one that's gonna go wild in the '80s. I mean, I could see it coming a mile away.
2: Oh, let's so. let's let's hope we have a prosperous partnership, and I never get depressed by anything weird like you replacing me on an album and falling into that dark black hole. But uh, all I see is uh is friendship up ahead, and uh, could not have made these beautiful pieces of art without that Dave thanks for trusting me
1: of course I'd say you're a hero of mine
2: and and you Dave a hero of mine in fact that would make us a couple that would make us a couple
1: (laughs) well yes we've already picked out the album title for this one but sure
2: ah all right, Dave, let's do, uh, let's do the last round of vocals and uh, wrap this up and start planning our next album.
1: Oh, yes. Oblique Strategies, here we go again. Well, you know, they, uh, you never can tell with those two, but if we're going to end on uh, some kind of note, that's one to end on. Anyhow. Uh, Eric, tell me more about the recording of this track. Yeah. I mean, so with this, you know,
2: the, I, there, there's just just some, just unbeatable lyrics in here. You know, I, obviously the one that you, I will be king, you will be queen. There's nothing that will drive them away. And that, that, that you get that oppression of that wall, the Berlin wall and always looking out their window in the studio and seeing the, uh, seeing the uh, easter the eastern uh berlin side and the and the guards and the guns um there's there there's a wall they they you know they they can't get they can't get past it they can't beat the oppression away, but maybe one day they can maybe just today if they just focus on their love and what they have together, they can forget about it and um that's great you can be mean I'll drink all the time I mean it's just kind of showing. Also a a flawed relationship, but a very real one. That's how that's how it can be. We're lovers, but that's a fact. We're lovers. That is that. Um, nothing will keep us together. I mean, that line is not a love song line, right there. You know that there is a split that's going to happen at some point, but we could still time just for one day. I I I I just love that. It's just it's it's that finding love in the moment. That's what the song's all about, and I and I really appreciate it. And. Uh, the swooping, epic backing track does, is amazing. I don't know. I, I I may be alone here, but I hate the single version of the song. Slicing two minutes from this track is a travesty. You, like you...
1: Yeah, no, that's a... The, the song, you know, one of my notes says that the album version, they come back and they do another verse at the end there, which they cut out, I think, of the radio single, and it's just, why'd you do that? You, know, you need to... This song, and this is this is where I feel this album's kind of uh, differentiates itself again from low. On low, they probably would have cut the song in half if it existed for that album. For this, they let it breathe. They let it go to where it needs to go. The song gets bigger and bigger, and it has six minutes to do it on the album. And yeah, that, that single yeah, you speak not a of, fan, not a good idea.
2: Um, and it's it's funny because if you listen to live versions, I and I may also be be uh, Stating, yeah, I I generally hate live versions of Heroes because the band, especially like when you see it in those later years, even if he's got a good band, they turn Heroes into this power pop song, and there is elements of that with that like that guitar drive, but it takes out all the atmosphere, all the drones, and it drives me crazy. That 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 makes the song the swooping epic it is. Um, Luckily the. uh, the live version on uh, Welcome to the Blackout keeps the atmosphere. They change it, the song, a bit, but it still actually has the, the weight that the song, song should have. Most of the time, 90% of the time I've heard this live, it, they lose that entirely, and that,
1: and that frustrates me. But I don't know. I'll, I'll get back to that when we talk about covers. You are correct, sir. Um, and yeah, that version on... on it's interesting. though. The, the Blackout album, any live album from that era how they take these studio records and they don't sound exactly the same, but they definitely do convey the same sense of atmosphere with uh, some different tools. I think they do a good job in that welcome to the blackout
0: mark. Any opinion on the single version of the live versions? Um, I didn't have an opportunity to take a look at the, uh, uh, welcome to the blackout, uh, live record. Um, but I kind of agree with you that, uh, the live version of heroes generally, if you're not there witnessing it live, um, it, it does feel a little papery um, if you're listening to a live version on record. Uh, two things, though, I wanted to just add to the discussion before we uh, talk about some of the covers, is that... Um, unless it was already said, now excuse me, but I'm not sure the correct, the correct pronunciation of this German band. Uh, they're a kraut band called new is kind of how I would pronounce it here in the States. But I think in Germany it's pronounced uh, uh, now or could be something like that with an exclamation point. Uh, but yeah, well, apparently, we, we, we
2: know we know who you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, have you ever heard those guys? I mean, yeah, yeah they're good. Are they yeah. kind of like
2: can I would I would put them in the same campus can with a little bit more synth
0: grooves. But uh, yeah, they're 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 a good time. So, I guess this song is a reference to their song from 1975 titled Hero. Uh, and I, Bowie and Eno are both fans of that band. And um, Bowie also said that the plotting tempo and rhythm were inspired by the Velvet Underground song, I'm Waiting for the Man, and I can totally see it.
2: Uh, oh, yeah, that guitar riff that I was talking about is totally Waiting for the yep. Man.
0: Um, and uh, other than that, yeah, no, this, the song has been studied and it will be continued to be studied for generations to come. Uh, and I think that's a good segue to talk about the covers.
1: <laughs> Not yet. Um, <laughs>
0: I have some other notes here. I haven't been able to get to yet. Um, it, well, I stand corrected. I guess it wasn't a good segue.
1: <laughs> it would have been. Um, but you know how I am the King, the King, the, the, the <laughs> barging right in the room. Knocking segues right off the uh, the table. Um, <laughs> back to the, the, one of the first things you said, Mark, about his voice cracking. Um, and the Tony Visconti said that he got up and sang in the microphone at to the top of his lungs, and uh, he what what the uh, Tony called the Bowie histro- 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 um his own per- peculiar style of yelling and screaming, and you can totally hear that. Just that you know. And we kissed. It's just, uh, it's it, it's great. Um, and there's a raw emotion to some of the lyrics in this track, and they they come up at exactly the right time. And what what Tony was also doing for this track was, um, they they came up with an experimental system of microphone placement. They had a, I'll just quote Visconti here, so I don't mess it up. We had a microphone about the customary nine inches from his face. Then we had another microphone about 20 feet from himself. Then we had another microphone about 50 feet away. And each of these microphones had like an electronic gate. So they would only open up when he was uh, near them or singing the, the quieter earlier, earlier passages. If he sang a little louder, the next microphone would open up with the gate. And that would make sort of a big splash of reverb. And then, if he sang really loud, that third microphone would would open up. And so, like, the louder he sang, the other microphones only became alive when he sang loud enough for them, which uh, I think that's part of the mystic, the magic of the song. The vocals can sound right next to you or very far away. Uh, The song starts off with the majority of the elements kind of in place. But by the end of the song, you can hear really right next to you. Brian Eno's weird ass, like he had this instrument that was basically like a joystick that he would move sound around with, if that makes sense. Towards the end of this track, you guys hear that, that, like it sounds like a spaceship landing, like we heard on some songs on low. It goes all around. If you're listening on headphones, Brian Eno's doing that like crazy. It Towards the end of this track, you've got Robert Fripp. His guitar loops are all looped over each other. Ad nauseum. It's just a but it's never oppressive. It's incredible. The amount of atmosphere and building they do in this song, but it's never like listening to a Godspeed, you black emperor or something.
2: Sorry, Steve. uh, One of the things in that Visconti video, um, as far as the, 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 the backing track goes is the, uh, at one point they did a, they doubled up a tambourine with a makeshift cowbell. They didn't have a cowbell. So they used like, you know, I don't know. I don't remember what it was kitchen pan or with a fork or something, but, um, that part I would have never picked out, but when he played it, I was like, oh yeah, that adds like a, definitely like a, silverware drawer <laughs> uh, percussion to the, uh, to the background of the song, which is huge. It's a big part of the yeah. song.
1: Uh, and I, and I would never have picked it out. They beat Fiona Apple to it by decades. And, um, you know, back, back to what we heard them kind of talking about on that, uh, that tape that we played of Tony and David talking uh, a wonderful part of the song that we got to focus on is the, the word Tony sings on it. Um, the, yeah, I remember by the wall that, that section's wonderful and brings just a, it's only for that, you know, that one verse he comes in, he does backup vocals on a call and response for four lines. And it just has such a great effect. used just enough to really leave an impression. Um, I mean, if, if we had, if I didn't just have a newborn and I had the time, I would give this song the teenage wildlife minute by minute treatment that I gave that track. It's it's deserving of it. Every section of the song is something different that is worthy of discussion. It's a, I actually think this song is a sister song, the teenage wildlife between the length, the, uh, the fact that the lyrics are not exactly very positive, but it sounds like it can be triumphant and positive. Uh, you know, the, 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 the literal lyrics on paper do not pluck the heartstrings like the sound of the lyrics being sung on this track. It's the same thing with Teenage Wildlife. Teenage Wildlife is kind of a sarcastic song, but my God, it sounds so romantic. Um, speaking of segues, I might just segue that into saying another sister song to this song. I can't believe none of us have brought this up, especially you, Mark. Is this is definitely a cousin, and inspiration on some level. to Nine Inch Nails is we're in this together now. I refuse to believe it's not.
2: Oh, we, we already said that when we talked about wearing This Together. But yes. Oh,
1: yeah. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we're talking about heroes now on this today. So, you know, I think it's worthy of uh, bringing it sure. up again. Is there definitely cousins? Absolutely. I mean, from from the lyrics of the, the king and queen side of things, from the length of the song, even the video for wearing This Together now, Ah. Eh. Kind of looks like it could be in the same set of the cover of this album, black and white, you know um,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean it is, it is that that like there is no winning this situation. It's just you know that being with you being that that love that love' it's like, it's like this podcast guys <laughs> it, in that little bubble, that little moment, it's enough to to overcome what they're trying to push us down into yeah uh, there's a, thematically they're 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 equal for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is probably one of the first times I became familiar with Robert Fripp when I discovered this song because of the Godzilla soundtrack. That plus tool triggered something in my memory of my dad talking about King Crimson and uh, that's probably where the love affair slowly started to start. And I I love that little elf man. This is probably the song he's most well known for. I mean, King Crimson never had any big hits. Um it's just uh it, 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 the song is so I can't believe it, was, it started as an instrumental. They considered making this instrumental. I can't believe it. Because while there's so many great sounds going on, what really sticks a knife in you is some of the delivery that Bowie comes up with. And the song is just so overwhelming that I find few examples of a song that is so big and classic that it overshadows the rest of the album it came This This song almost does that. Uh, there's like for ages, I would just put heroes on and listen to track three and that was it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, he, that it's, it's crazy how, how big this song is compared to the other great songs on this record. Say it's, it's a hell yeah of a track. Yeah. So back to Mark's point about 10 minutes ago, um, the covers, there's so many covers and it's to your point, Mark and Eric's, is that many of these covers, they want to get that surface level, like, we're going to be heroes, guys! And it usually, typically, they don't have everything else you need to make the song work. On top of that, all of the production on this song, when you strip everything away, you can sound pretty basic, which happened to Bowie himself. Do you guys have a... Uh, I mean, there are many covers of the song. It's just I'll list
0: a few of them in a second. But do either of you have a cover of the song that you actually enjoy? I, I mean, top of my head, no. Having said that, I'm not opposed to any of the covers, really, that I have come across. Even that uh, Jacob Dylan won uh, Wallflowers, one that we heard in uh, the Godzilla soundtrack from 1998. Uh, I, It's not great, but uh, I don't hate it. Um, Eric, how about you?
2: I mean, I'm not a fan of any of the covers. I do like. I mean, I haven't heard all of them, um, but I do like the Depeche Mode one. Um, I think I think it works. Uh, but I yeah, I don't. I, I I heard one today that I'm sure Steve will get to that sucked any life out of this song that ever existed. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah pretty much I think the rule of thumb is if you, if you remove the drony atmosphere from the song then you've got a power pop song that's just not going to work um, and I think that that is usually the casualty of covering the song but there are some exceptions and I like the Depeche Mode one um, TV and the radio did a version right I, I imagine they did a great job
1: yeah their version's alright David Billy actually asked them to cover it interesting enough oh, that makes sense I can, I can see
2: them doing it because especially their early work was a lot of that wall of sound, the repetitive guitar stuff with the wall of sound. I, I, it, it does definitely fit. I see that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's just there's, there's been covers of this song damn near since when this song came out. Uh, Blondie, Nico, um, The wallflowers, TV on the radio, Ted Leo, uh, King Crimson covered it themselves when they had two men that played versions of it for decades. Uh, Adrian Blue and Robert Fripp in the most recent version of the touring King Crimson uh, configuration did a cover after Bowie died. It's all right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Depeche Mode, like you said, Clan of Zymox did a version. Eric, they did a... Did you listen to both of them? I did, I did. The
2: uh, slow industrial version, which why they would call it that, <laughs> It's more instrumental, but it's Clan of Zymox is an interesting, interesting band. Um, That's actually a Heather band. It's my wife. Uh, Because they're, they rarely show up on like an industrial feed, but because they're a little bit calmer, um, but uh, they've got something going for them. They've got a little grit to them and um, they've got an ear for melody, which is a dark melody, which is kind of, kind of a, uh, makes them kind of a unicorn in that genre. Um, and their covers are great. I, I actually like both covers quite a bit for the of the of the, of the song.
1: Interesting. Um, uh, Till from Ramstein, he did a version with Apocalyptica, and he sings it in the German version. It's pretty. I think it's worth listening to. Helden, yes, Helden, and um, there's many, many more. My favorite, actually, and this kind of flies in the face of what we were saying. Uh, Nick Swisher. No, that's <laughs> next. That's where we're going to close with that monstrosity. My favorite is the motorhead cover. Uh, the motorhead cover came out shortly after Lemmy died. Lemmy died shortly after or right before Bowie died. And um, that's, I always thought it was kind of uh, bittersweet. They released that right afterwards and motorheads just three piece band. And uh, they do tiptoe the, uh, the ACDC line of many songs sounding the same, but there's some kind of extra oomph and heart, in my opinion, to their cover of this song that even though it doesn't have all of the, Eno Atari sounds or the frip blasts or the Alomar riffs, just their basic three piece version of it with Lemmy's vocals works for me. I really like the motorhead version.
2: Well, let me, let, let
1: me do in that baseline. Great. So that, that yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good version, I think. Um, I discovered last night, though, or maybe this morning, it might have been like 1 a.m., uh, <laughs> when I was looking for every cover I could find of this song and I was listening to them. Uh, Nick Swisher, who used to be on the Oakland A's, he used to be on the Yankees. Where else did he go, Mark?
0: Played for the Indians for a time, um, but I think that's it. I think he finished his career out as a, as a Cleveland Indian.
1: Yeah, I'd say Nick Swisher was a solid B minus player when the history books look at him. Uh, not just slightly above average, uh, but you'd be happy to have him on your team. Typically, uh, more well known for his hair than his baseball playing abilities. Um, he put out an album of covers, and his version of this is somewhere in between Kids Bop and uh, Bruce Willis's Return of Bruno. <laughs> his, so bad it's overproduced as you expect from any celebrity doing a record that has no business singing especially a baseball player um he has like a chorus of kids singing the uh the chorus and then towards the end of it he like in between like the we could be heroes he starts saying things like yeah we could (laughs) we could be heroes you got that right we will be heroes (laughs) it's just he's he starts interspersing these like uh These pat on the back chants, it's really bad. It's just, I mean, I think it's.
0: I was going to say, it's like that scene in uh, Boogie Nights where you've got um, Mark Wahlberg's character in the studio with uh, Michael Penn behind the boards. You got the touch. And and then feel my heat. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. I mean, it's really going to be hard for Nick Swisher to top his song called LeBron James from his album called Nick Tunes. Styled after, uh, styled after Nickelodeon, um, <laughs> artwork. Uh, oh God, it's so bad, but Hey, listen, there's a low bar for professional athletes making music as, as Peel Peel showed us. And I, and I love that goddamn sketch. So, so much,
1: of course, David Hasselhoff covers this song. Uh, I don't know if he did it in German, which it would make sense if he did, but he did do it in English and it was recent and other members of the band on that album are Tyler Bates and Gil Sharon. Uh, OK.
2: Oh, yeah, that, that's his new album. Uh, he does uh, a ministry, does a uh, he they do a uh, Neil. They do a Neil Diamond cover on uh, Sweet Caroline. Yeah, they uh, Yeah, that album is uh, weirdly listenable. Uh, one time, once, once through. Um, his, uh, yeah, his taste in music or at least his producer's taste in music is not bad on that, on that new Hesselhoff uh, album um, but there's always the classic story of there was a big festival in West Berlin and Bowie was performing this song and he could just hear people on the other side of the wall responding to it and it would be very soon before the wall would come down and it just is a great moment. And Hasselhoff was at that festival. So, um, you know, he, he caught the power of the song in the moment for sure. So
1: <laughs> he did. And uh, yeah, we could we could probably do a whole episode of the song Heroes. We got to move on. But we are not going to. We're going We're to move on from that classic song that I'm glad we finally got to talk about it to a song. With a title that I love. The Sons of the Silent Age.
2: Did we just do an hour on heroes?
1: (laughs) I think we did. Great.
3: Of the silent age, stand on platforms, blank books and notebooks. Sit in back rows of city limits, lay in bed, coming and going on easy terms, Sons of the Silent Age. Face their rooms like a cell's dimension. Rise for a year or two, then make war. Search through their one-inch thoughts, then decide it couldn't be done.
1: Eric, for some reason, this strikes me as an Eric song. Yeah, this I I like this song. I
2: was on vacation last week. I uh, family's been quarantining hardcore since March, but we uh, we like we like a little spot up on the north coast, Humboldt, California. Nobody goes there. The beaches are not recreational. They're they're uh, dangerous and cold and rocky. And uh, it's great. And there's a big redwood forest up there. We love it. And uh, we were up there last week and i was just looking out over the ocean at night and the song came on and uh i got i got i was like okay i appreciate this this is this is a great little song um this is a closest thing to a i guess a a ballad on this album um it is uh it's basically like uh looking at uh, it's basically bowie bowie would do this a few times every now and then um he'll look at uh, kind of what, I think I talked about it back on the, the hours album, you know, the, the, the normies, the ones that can't really figure out uh, what, what the intellectuals have going on. And that's the sons of the silent age, uh, boring day-to-day people. All I see or all I see is all I know limited potential people that that's that lyric right there. The people that can't see past their little periphery. Um. And, uh, he, I think this is the most effective way he's kind of approached that limited scope, which has kind of been his, an arch enemy for him in his lyrics from time to time. Uh, the song itself is a, uh, it's a Groover. Um, there's a lot of sacks, but it's, it's, I like the minor chord. It, 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 uh, gives it kind of an evil sound in the song. Um, and, uh, Yeah, it's 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 a slower song, but it's got a groove to it and uh, I enjoy it. What do you guys
0: think? So I. uh, This is one of the songs that doesn't instantly grab me Um, uh, on repeated listenings is when it really starts to, um, uh, I guess, show what it's capable of doing. Um, So it wasn't an instant win for me. I do really like the fact that it is a soulful song. It's taken things down a notch. Uh, I think it's sequenced very well after the one, two, three punch that you get. Um, apparently, this song was uh, song title. Excuse me, was supposed to potentially be the album title as well. And it's as to Steve's point, a great, um, a great song title. Sons of the Silent Age. Um, obviously, it's uh, if you're thinking about it in terms of film um, and how influential the pieces of work is all cinema at that point is sons of the silent age. Of course, it doesn't really mean that. That's how I'm interpreting it. Uh, I think lyrically it probably falls a little bit closer to uh, the lyrical content that you find on the man who sold the world. Um, talking about the homo superior and things like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's a good song. It's not one of my favorites on the record because it didn't instantly hook me, but Bowie's performance vocally is, again, you see him on his, on his knees, his hand one hand up in the air, belting it to the rafters. Um, and I appreciate the theatricality that he's bringing to this song. Steve?
1: I'm a big fan of this song. I'm really... Uh, this album, again, with the Cousins... Cousins and similarities to Night Nails. This song to me sounds like it could have been transported onto Bad Witch somewhere. Um, it has these weird just like lasers and ominous effect. It makes you feel like you're stumbling around with something so big you can't see it. Um, like the, the, the cold icy robot Bowie approach to the verse reminds me of Hal. And at the end, where it has that that final boom, 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 it sounds like these lasers are coming at you. It's just uh, it's so robotic. And then in between it all, Mark, like you said, there is some soulfulness to this. The 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 verses, the the baby, 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 that whole part. I mean, that's incredible that they bookend the icy robots with. You know, reminding you that Bowie loves to croon and his backup band comes from R&B. Um, I think it's a great juxtaposition. It's uh, it is kind of unsettling. And I still find it to be pleasant to listen to. Um, got some great saxophone on it. I'm uh, That's Bowie on the sax. He's reminding us he's not a classically trained sax player again, but I think it fits. Uh, Dennis Davies gets some 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 chances to show the drummer can do some drumming. Uh, there's some definite good drum fills that go right into those uh, choruses, and the weird mix of futurism with classic vocalizations. I would put this song this is very esoteric, but I could th- this could be a song that you stumble upon in a Bioshock Infinite. It has that weird mix of the two, the organic in the future. I I am a fan of this track and the sons of the silent age sounds like a group that Dr. Strange would fight. (laughs) Uh, Bowie's delivery on baby. I'll never let you down
2: um, with this little spacey backing vocals is, is that that's my, uh, that's, uh, that's my uh, creme de la creme right there. Good stuff. Mm
1: -hmm. All right. Well, we've taken a, we, we, we've slowed things down a bit i going to pick him up a little bit with blackout. know how literal we're getting here with the references to drinking but between beauty and the beast joe the lion and blackout i feel like there could be a case being made here that there there's some kind of liquid dependence theme on this album if you want it mark uh does does blackout pick things up a little bit for you from the last track
0: it really does um if anything it uh has elements of both station to station and low on one track. Uh, It instantly shines as being the uh, side A closer. Um, You've got uh, Dennis Davies drumming is really, again, shining on this track. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I hear a little bit of always crashing in the same car. Uh, mixed with uh, some of um, "Look Back in Anger" off of Lodger, which is coming next, so it's it's definitely the song had to be produced of this caliber um, as he was going through this creative output. It's just too influential from its neighbors. Um, Eric, what do you what do you think? Hi right, this is this is a a big one
2: for me. Um this one I never remembered and um now will not be able to forget. I I really like this song. Um musically it's the most challenging maybe on this album. Um the drums are huge on this song and uh the synth blasts uh I uh it, eh. Uh, it's got some proto industrial moments which i I really appreciate the song itself as a whole doesn't really feel that way but um the 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 synth linking up with the big old drums I, I i i enjoy um and uh the song is all over the place i mean it is frantic yeah in in the best way possible um the lyrics uh Bowie at some point said that he was referring to an electrical blackout that happened in New York in, the, in, in this year. Um, but he's also talking about drinking, clearly. Um, and he uh, apparently, you know, he was with Angie Bowie still at this time. And when she would visit, uh, he would tend to go on a bender. And th- those usually linked up. So we have like, your lips cut a smile on your face the cage to the cage she was a beauty in a cage it's too high a price to drink rotten, rotting wine from your hands there was a uh, there was definitely a link to a love to a love story there as well um someone's back in town the chips are down i just cut and black out and then uh, i love the little lyric about the doctor said like the going to the doctor part is uh is is a uh, is a real jam um this song was a was my big surprise on this album.
1: It's interesting because it could be, you know, it, it, it is kind of it does have that weird heroes, low quirkiness to it, but it could be just a rock song. I mean, it's, I think it's danceable and it's got that pounding piano kind of coming back from Beauty and the Beast. I was talking about it's like Jerry Lee Lewis pounding piano work on it. And uh, Mark mentioned Dennis Davies going crazy. He's definitely got a drum beat going on here that you could dance to. Um, it's such a it's a rave up, man. It's a, just a song that it it gets going and it just moves forward. I I think it's great live. Um, lyrically, you know, I do think it has to do with he was basically talking about literal blackouts. I mean, look at this line here: too high a price to drink rotting wine from your hands. Get me to a doctor's. I've been told someone's back in town. The chips are down. I just cut and blackout. I'm under Japanese influence and my honor's at stake. (laughs) What the fuck? Um, You know, it's a, yeah, I definitely think that has more to do with a literal drinking blackout. If I was a musician, I probably would write plenty of songs about blacking out, blacking out while drinking is one of the worst feelings in the world. Losing, losing time. And then wondering how you made an ass out of yourself. All three of us have been there. Oh yeah. Text, texting everybody frantically the next morning. What did
2: I do last night? It's a terrible, terrible feeling. Terrible.
1: Yeah, no, it's a a, a very terrible feeling that probably would lend to some art if you were an artist. Um, I think it's a sleeper classic Bowie track. I think it's really good. Uh, To Mark's point, uh, the closest I could see this track to being on low might be Maybe Be My Wife. Um, Just because nothing on low sounds as organic to me as this album does. But I could definitely see Blackout being on Lodger. I could see it fitting on Lodger. It's also an Angie song, and that was "Be My Wife" was an Angie song, also. So, ah, oh, there, there you go. Um, it has some great backup vocals on it, and the song just has a the the, the the lyrical content aside. It has like a sense of espionage danger to it. I don't know. The sounds just—it sounds dangerous to me. It's a great, it's a great song. It's a cool song. That's um, I do like it quite a bit, and I, I like the name. Can we talk about the live, the live, the live version? The welcome to the blackout. Sure, I was actually going to say, I love the name. I love that. T- welcome to the blackout. That's a, that's ominous, man. And so, yeah, that's a, a live version, a live album that came out. I'm not sure if that came out back in the seventies. I think that was released decades later. Um, there was plenty of footage filmed from that tour uh, that you could find online. And I encourage anyone to because if you want to see this configuration of the band, just swap out Adrian Blue with—I'm sorry—swap out Robert Fripp with Adrian Blue, and also add the violinist from Hawkwind. Uh, that's what you get, and I think they're awesome to watch live. And this track in particular, you like—you like the live version of this one, huh, Eric? Yeah. And can I be so bold? This might be my favorite live
2: Bowie album. Um, which i don't usually get excited about live albums but um hearing this band do 5 years <laughs> it was really cool like like swapping swapping in the Eno synths i know he wasn't playing on it but that that sound you know uh with some of his earlier sounds it just kind of like took his old like ziggy he played like half a ziggy stardust took his old ziggy sounds and like brought it into new wave. It was amazing. Mark, did you get a chance to listen to welcome to the blackout at all?
0: No. Um, I think we, we, I talked about that a little bit that the live record, um, but hearing you wax essentially poetic about it. Um, I'll definitely be uh, taking a look at that.
1: I was going to say the cool thing about welcome to blackout is there's plenty of David Billy live albums from the seventies, but I think when they, the live albums like David live, that might have been near this tour sounds like shit and that welcome to the blackout album it has the station to station berlin trilogy scary monsters band and they it's produced really well and some of the song choices are awesome and um again in addition to what they pull from the low from this album and low you also get stay and station to station and they do a they do a midsection, or actually, it's like it's like a closer before the encore, maybe, where they do like five songs in a row off Ziggy Stardust with the Alomar configuration of the band, and um, it's all good, it's great. I think yeah, it's worth checking out. That, that station, the station cover is amazing too.
2: They even like recreate the whole train sounds at the beginning with with all of the synth work that they have. It's it's cool, and they don't shy away from live versions of like Subterraneans or uh, some of the instrumentals on this one. Um, they do those live too, which is cool.
1: Yeah, it opens, it opens up with Wararza. Bold. All right. Well, let's flip the
2: record over and we are on V2 Schneider.
1: To Schneider. Oh yeah! Tell us all about it, Eric.
2: You got it. Craftwork uh, always thought this song was about them. Uh, Florian Schneider, co-founder of Craftwork. Um, see the one that just died. Somebody just died from from
0: Craftwork. Uh, Mark, you usually know this. Um, unless it was Regis Feldman, I I don't know.
1: <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't. Know. Yeah, we actually we had a we had a true we had a true. It comes in threes yesterday, all in one day. Uh, Regis Philbin, Peter Green, founder of Fleetwood Mac. And then Eric, who's that actor that passed away? John Saxon.
2: John Saxon, a true thespian of the uh, exploitation genre. He and uh, Robert Forrester are are, uh, are, uh, two sides of the same coin. So anyways. Yes. but Yes, but anyways, um, there's also the V2 rocket, which Germans used during World War II. But, uh, this, I, I, I love, I love this song and and there's clearly like a similar pattern to this and low, right? You have your first side, which has all your bangers. You have your second side, which has all of your instrumental works, but that's not entirely true on this album. The first side of side two, which is if they're following the same pattern is going to bring us into instrumental. This song is pretty instrumental. There is some vocalizing by Bowie in the song. Um, it's not ambient at all. it It actually has a pretty driving beat to it. There's saxophone, um, there's some like I said, some vocalization. and then it goes into a few songs of of pretty chill um, ambient kind of stuff. Uh, and then of course, it ends with what we'll talk about which is the, the closer. So it is a little different. What I like about this song is unlike in low, you get a transition from the kind of squirrely uh, pop-oriented songs to the instrumental, because this is essentially an instrumental track, but it has a drive to it, and it's a great transition into the rest of the album. So I, I, I like the song quite a bit. It, it should be up there in the upper echelon of Bowie instrumentals. Um, great sax work. Uh, what do you guys think?
0: Um, I think as a beast, uh, the B-side opener, essentially, it does kind of give you that same sort of feel that Beauty and the Beast does. It kind of ramps up into this kind of jam uh, that's both minimal and lush at the same time, if that makes any sense. Um, And certainly owes a little bit of, uh, I guess has this kind of machine like presence to it, that everything is just spinning like a clock kind of, if I was to see this song in motion is what it would look like with, you could see the gears turning in order to make the, the thing as a whole come together, and you know, upon my research, Bowie uh, apparently mislabeled Kraftwerk and uh, Roxy Music as you know almost have a little bit close to a neo-Nazi kind of thing, uh, and I don't know how he came to that conclusion. Of course, we talked a little bit about it in Station to Station, where his Thin White Duke character was kind of a sympathizer to fascism, fascism as as a whole, which, you know, during that time, he was also doing a diet of milk and peppers, so he was a little insane. Um, <laughs> yeah, this, the, this, the great sexual conqueror. Yeah.
2: That was the thin weight.
0: Um, yeah. We go on. And I don't know why alpha types always have to feel that fascism is acceptable, but we see it every day with people. Uh, saying all lives matter and, you know, just getting in the face of people who are really trying to affect social change, but that's neither here nor there. I like this song. It's not really an instrumental because he does say V2 Schneider pretty much over and over again. Uh, but as an album B side, second side opener, uh, I think it works. But then when you get a little bit more in deep with the uh, other instrumentals here, Doesn't sound anything like this one. So it's good. But as far
2: as like a transition from more classically, you know, classically structured pop songs
1: to instrumental, I think it's a good transition piece.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Steven? It's all right. It's a good B side opener, like Mark said. It's got a drive to it, it's a good transitionary song. I like all the other instrumentals better than it. But I don't find the need to skip it. It's, um, it does what it, it, it does, what it's supposed to do. I think it's supposed to rocket you from the land of lyrics to the land of instrumentals bridge song.
2: All right. Well, speaking of instrumentals, the next track is sense of doubt.
1: Sense of Doubt. That, that, uh, that title's right up there with uh, Sons of the Silent Age of uh, titles in this album that I like. Sense of Doubt. Well, he got he
2: got that title from Brian Eno. In the lighter notes for Music for Airports, which is one of his amazing Ambient albums, uh, Eno wrote, uh, conventional background music is produced by stripping away all sense of doubt in certain. So that's where uh, apparently
1: where he got it from or at least according to my research it sounds to me like the title of a uh, it sounds like a the title of a Harrison Ford erotic or almost erotic thriller presumed innocent sense of doubt
2: or, or, yeah uh, richard gere and uh sharon stone movie from the 90s michael michael douglas
1: michael douglas yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Aragorn is definitely michael douglas and in- and Aragorn is definitely the other man that lives in the flat that you can only access by a freight yes. elevator. <laughs> yeah, I'm
2: I'm getting turned on just hearing about this, Steve. Go on, continue.
1: Since <laughs> <laughs> uh, of doubt. Uh, this is uh, probably, you know, I, I, I think this is a, a pretty cool song. Um, they They were using the oblique strategies for this track and it's 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 a minimalistic instrumental, but it has a sense of foreboding
2: yeah, this song is uh i like it it's got a horror sound to it which i which i really like um and uh it's got a sense of direction to it um so it's not technically ambient um I would actually put this on this this feels like a, a score to a horror movie and uh I, I, I like this. And there is a live version of it on that, that Welcome to the Blackout that's that fantastic. You can tell the band enjoyed like uh, dabbling in this world of, of, of horror music. Um, it's disturbing. I like it. Mark?
0: Yeah, I think um, this one might be my favorite instrumental. The the next three that we get, it does give you that sense of just dread that foreboding. I think it's aptly titled. Um And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Crystal Japan. I see that. um, With a little bit more darker tones to it, especially kind of towards the end with the synths really, not the boo-doo-doo-doo, but the higher pitched, you know, kind of um, someone's leaning on the keyboard kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they like, it has the giant plotting pianos, but then it has like these light and airy and almost pan flute keyboards the cross you know i I think it's pretty cool like a very this is a this is a song that reminds me of a, a future a, a like a future temple or like a zelda temple you know i just you know i love my zelda temples and uh this has definitely got this yeah
2: it's a good it's a goodie and i agree with you mark this is the best of the instrumentals as far as i'm concerned i disagree we're here to fight we're here to discuss on this uh on the on this album
1: yes I still disagree. We'll get we'll get to mine very soon. Here I can narrow it down for you. It's not Moss Garden. <laughs> but what I do find interesting is that this song kind of crossfades into Moss Garden. So let's talk about Moss Garden. garden the only David Bowie song I know of where David plays the Koto no
2: we just talked we just talked about hours and he played a Koto on a a track on that as well that was the day spot track
1: oh and that really that very memorable album hours so (laughs) please forgive me for forgetting anything off that conversation
2: this this song is is uh, very chill he does play the Koto but it's 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 a beautiful very delicate composition um the swirling synths kind of go around this plucking of the koto and um it never unlike the song on hours this never feels like uh a day spa thing there's more to it than that there is a there is actually a melody that swirls in and out of the song um it's nice it's a nice little ambient thing in the middle of this record um wedged between two more driving instrumentals um And uh, yeah, it's fine.
1: Actually, yeah, it's wedged between two darker instrumentals, too, I think. And if you were to be visualizing and I think that's a good ambient music, which is what, you know, excels at, gives you a sense of place like you are there. And I definitely feel like with these three instrumentals, Moss Garden in between the two of them is like, a you know, you can have a respite between these darker times, these darker places in this moss garden. And have you guys noticed? I didn't notice this until homework for the the uh, the podcast. At the beginning and end of these, at the end of Sense of Doubt into Moss Garden, and then from Moss Garden into the uh, N- Nuclon. There's like the sound of like a jet like taking off or landing. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Like it's that's pretty cool, and it gives you that sense of of travel and the. Uh, and placement and moving from one of these songs or places to the next
2: uh
1: so they did uh, they
2: did the, the uh Obelique strategies on this and bowie's card said destroy everything but he was playing the kota which is a very delicate instrument so i think he tried to play a melody and then kind of uh, disintegrate it as he played it and that was the most destroy he could do because this song does not feel like destruction so that was Bowie's direction on this song, and I think he does it the best he can. I think it helps as you as you listen to it, too. But anyways,
1: yeah, I actually but uh, Mark or Eric, it sounds like you're talking about the oblique strategies for this one. Correct. And so, yeah, Bowie had to destroy everything. And did you read out what Eno's card said? What was his <laughs> change? Nothing and continue with immaculate consistency.
2: That's right. Right.
1: That's good. So they kind of cancel each other out there.
0: Mark, you got anything else on Moss Garden? It's very zen. Uh, there's no denying the Japanese uh, influence on this song. Um, I, I'm fine with it as well. It, it's kind of like Bowie doing A Warm Place, outside of Crystal Japan, of course, which seemed to lift of that. Of course,
2: which is Bowie's Bowie's yeah. warm place.
0: Yeah. Um, But it's... It's not something I could probably listen to on Shuffle as I'm driving on a long-distance road trip. Um, otherwise, there'd be car accidents. <laughs> but um, it, yes. if I want to just kind of have something in the background as I'm working, doing, filling out spreadsheets, uh, it's not bad. It's not bad.
2: Mark, I got to know, did you pull Did you pull back a ponytail while you were listening to the song?
0: Uh, half ponytail, you know, because, uh, you know, like my style icon Frank T.J. Mackey from Magnolia. Sure. Sure. Um, that's how I tend to work.
1: You know, it's interesting you bringing up that visualization of driving down the road and and crashing because, um, what they call that is, is that when you drive down the road and something puts you to sleep and you crash into a ditch of some sort near the road, there's a phrase and it's called the river of dreams.
3: In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep.
0: And couldn't be more right. But that song, uh, for me, it does the opposite of putting me to sleep. Makes me do handsprings, jumping jacks, and um, somersaults. So that's just me, though. Steve, Steve,
2: when you when you hit the River of Dreams back in 2004, I remember that night very well. Did the police ask you to, um, to recite the lyrics
1: to River of Dreams backwards? No. Well, for one, it was like 2002. All right. And um, get that straight. And I don't have any follow-up jokes.
2: <laughs> we've, known, we've known each other a long time. All right. Next. This, uh, mm, yeah. Too long if you ask me. <laughs> Next. New Col- Colin. New, New Colm. New Colm. How do you guys say this song?
0: Mark, Mark, you're the most worldly, worldly of us all. How do you say this? Just say, just let's do the Americanization of it and just say, new colon.
1: Let's talk about new colon, new colon,
2: new colon. So uh, this one uh, is it. This one has a little bit more drive to it than the previous song. Uh, You got some fantastic Bowie sacks just shredding all over the song. Um, And uh, I mean, I don't know. It's a pretty enjoyable instrumental on this track. Maybe you guys have more to say
1: on it. What I can say about it. Is it yes? The saxophone's amazing. I think it's the saxophone really brings it home for me. This is my favorite instrumental on this album. It reminds me a lot of Blade Runner. I think this really set the table for a lot of uh, synth score music you got in the 80s, whether people knew it or not. I think you can trace a lot of that back to Sense of Doubt and this song. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, I didn't even. Yeah, the, the, you're you're dead you're dead on there, Steve. Yeah, there's definitely some. Tangerine Dream type stuff going on on this track. And again, back to Bad Witch. That saxophone plus the general dread going on here. Kind of gives me... Uh, takes me... The, I think I think Trent was going for some of that vibe with with Bad Witch. But actually, this album made me want to listen to Bad Witch again. It's always fun when one record makes you want to listen to another record by another artist. And that... Sax blast into the darkness at the end of the song. I really like. It goes on for, for You think the song's done, and then like okay, I think it's done. and Then it's just it's that's uh, pretty fun. I I'm a big fan of this track,
0: Mark. It sounds like a um, a foggy night at a Turkish marketplace. Um, it's Definitely got atmosphere for days. I absolutely agree with the kind of noirish sound, futuristic noir sound uh, that certainly applies to Blade Runner. Um, it it fits so well in terms of sense of doubt. I could see like why he wanted to put Moss Garden in between the two, so that way it gives it a little bit of separation. Um, but it seems like it's a continuation of that sort of. Just uneasiness that paranoia sound that he was going for. I
1: think it would be a very interesting way to end the album but they chose a more interesting way dare I say the way they chose to end this record is what makes me place it just above low let's talk about the closing track The Secret Life of Arabia." Secret Life of Arabia, closing track on Heroes. I'll just get my Chambers Hyperbole out of the way. This is like a secret top 10 track to me. It is one of the best Bowie songs of all time that I'd never gave enough time to. I think it's an incredible song. I think it's a great album closer. I absolutely love this track. I'm sure both of you will be like, well, I don't like it as much as Steve, but it's okay. And that's fine. I love this song. What do you guys think about the closing track?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a top three song for me on this album. It's not my favorite song on the album, but uh, uh, once again, I think I'm not going to go as far to say that this elevates it above low for me because there are certain aesthetic things about low that just appeal to my sensibilities. But um, you can tell there, I am a sucker for good sequencing. I love good sequencing. And the fact that this, this side started with V2 Schneider, which which was a transition from the vocally poppy stuff to the instrumental, and then it ends with a very like Berlin trilogy sounding funk song, but with a little bit of world music, which is what he will do on Lodger. And it's a perfect, perfect transition song,
1: and uh, and exactly this is, this it's definitely we talk about those. Future visions, where there's a song on some albums where you're pointing to the next thing he's gonna do, this is definitely that one for lodger. It's awesome
2: yeah, and I know um on Twitter, Nicholas Pegg has been talking about how every album has a foreshadow on the next album, and I think he's dead dead on. I think it's uh, we've talked about it too, like, oh, this sounds like where he'll go with young Americans or whatever, but um, this is for sure lodger it's you've got you've got um you know. Secret Life Arabia. There's nothing Arabian about the music in this, but there is some world music mystique. There's there's uh, hand drums going on. There is synths doing a slightly different approach to it, which you know could mimic accordions or or woodwinds of uh, uh, you know uh, Eastern music. And uh, you know the song itself is not necessarily the lyrics aren't targeting. Uh, Arabian. It's not. It's not Robin Williams singing the opening to Aladdin in the song.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs>
2: at all. Unfortunately, <laughs> but it's this 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 world where you can go and start over and 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 escape. And we all we know that's what he was doing in Berlin. And um, there is some references to to heroin and other things and and so like while you try to escape there maybe is no escape but there's still the uh the sense of mystery and this song really captures that and god damn it it's funky as hell like this song if you can't get a swagger in your step if this, this if you can't if you can't swing your hips a little bit while you listen to this you got something you got something very wrong with you it's, it's a great song
0: yeah no i agree with you guys um it uh certainly seems like it could be an after credit stinger just so that way we know that B- david bowie is going to return in a different uh sort of um form for the re- for the next record where he's going to take some of that funk that he's learned how to do uh from young americans and then throw it through the german grinder and then out comes you know this one um the hand claps, the backing vocals, everything around this track, uh, it's, it's so polished because, um, you kind of get this sense of, uh, technology just overcoming him throughout the whole album. Um, this one here brings it all together in a sound that's so undeniably catchy, gets stuck in your head. And if you're walking along as you're listening to this song, you're, Your your gait and your walk is going to go along to the beat on this one, as if you're holding a paint can, um, and you're John Travolta doing Saturday Night. uh, You know, staying alive. It's it's just one of those just catchy beats that's so ahead of its time. Um, Fantastic, fantastic way to close out the album. It's a it's it's a perfect amalgam of everything.
2: There, it's funky, which he's been doing funky since. You know, before Diamond Dogs, it's it's got a little bit of jammy. It's got a synth atmosphere to it. And those hand drums because like there's a very much a world music focus on lodger. So that hand drums kind of bring us to that. And uh, God damn it. The last two minutes when the clap track takes over, it's sublime. It's it's sublime. It's all it's all I need.
1: Yeah. The clap track.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, he, he, he didn't. I just think that like Mark's point about technology taking over. They get a little bit more organic here. He, you know, his band, which is one we've, we've decided in the journey of the podcast that this configuration of this band is just tight and funky and groovy, and they can do whatever they want. And you, know, Carlos Alomar, has got some funk guitar on here that you can't mess around with. And uh, Dennis Davies is doing his thing, and uh, you know the ba- the bass line is it's got a step to it, like Mark was saying, and. um If you actually, if you, if you follow that bass line, he actually takes it some, uh, some places. It's a, it's a great, it's a great bass line. And like when I'm listening to this song, like I can imagine like, you know, Bowie's the lead, like the Gladys Knight, and the pips are behind him or something. It's just, there's this shuffle to it. And even Eno, Eno kind of like, Eno still brings some Eno-esque sound effects going on that help with the rhythm to it. It's almost like Eno creates this weird, like shuffle shake, uh, sound effect that just gives it a strut and um, everything works together. I love that. uh, The sea. Oh, excuse me. That, that first, that secret life. And then the, of Arabia. And it's kind of phased in and out. And um, I love that lyric. I was running at the speed of life. I have turned that lyric over in my head so many times. I think it's just a great line. I'm, I was running at the speed of life. Kind of sums up, you know, just all the shit trying to keep up you know i just i don't know i love that and um later in the song where he he goes back to movie imagery is fun he's done that many times you know, you must see the movie the sand in my eyes i walk through a desert when the heroine dies i think he's talking about a heroine uh, eric like a like a you know a, a, a female hero um
2: correct but it's a, it's a play on words it's a play on words
1: his his buddy iggy got it, it is it yes his buddy
2: they, arabia was their escape it's arabia is a is is a is a stand-in for berlin because there's nothing about the song that is arabia uh it was their escape and unfortunately iggy got into the they, uh, berlin was a heroine mm-hmm. uh mecca <laughs> and and a, a, as iggy found out as soon as they started so I I I feel like it was a play on words and they love doing the little, little little uh drug uh, uh wordplay all all over the Berlin trilogy. So I don't know. That's my opinion. I know you think I know you think I'm always stretching and reaching for the
1: the well all right. I'll, I'll, I might you're always looking you're always looking for the drug talk. Always. Um No, but I just think that David Bowie really closes this album strong and proves why he's the king of what he does. There's so many little vocal fluctuations on this track, but it sounds like the same song. The song does a lot in its four minutes. It's four minutes long, but it just does so much. And yeah, by the time, like Eric was saying, when the, the, the hand claps get to town, you're just like, what? I didn't think we could take this thing any higher, but apparently we're going to. And uh, I think it's actually a cool song to be the final proper song we talk about on the podcast because of that. I just there's a song at the end of heroes that kind of sums up everything this guy can do and it's not showy about it. And it does it in four minutes. It's wonderful. It's a great track, great album closer. And, uh, I'm sure some people kind of wanted like low ending where it's like, all right, the second half was instrumental. It has more of an impact to me, bookending everything, putting a button on it with this, with this song. And like Eric said, with the V2 Schneider, being a certain type of, of instrumental song, going through the Sense of Doubt, Mosgarda, Nuclon, quiet trilogy, ambient trilogy, ending with this track, which could lead you into Lodger. I think it's wonderful. I think this song's really the, uh, you know, when they talk about the Berlin trilogy, they say, yeah, you know, well, it wasn't really the Berlin trilogy at the time. It wasn't all recorded in Berlin. By the time he got to Lodger, Eno was starting to take a step back, etc., etc. I think this song, though, Really ties the whole thing together. It ties Lodger back into Heroes, and having it come at the end of the instrumental motif, which reminds you of Low. Just, I, I think it's the rug that ties the room together. Good track. Because I don't want the one bonus track to be
2: the last thing we talk about. Let me do that before we rate this thing. Um, uh, there is one bonus track that was released on the Ryko edition and much like the bonus tracks on low it is speculated that it was just taken from be real from the era and then redone with Bowie's 90s band like Reeves G- Gabriels um uh, Ab- Abdul Majid which is also Bowie's wife uh, Iman's last name so clearly if he's named the song that he did not name that until they got married in early 90s so this was a refinished track in the early '90s when Ryko Disc came out. Um, it's actually a pretty cool B-side. It's got the ambient things, but it's got some of that '90s um, uh, low-tempo techno drums going on. Um, it's fine. It's not as good as the instrumentals on the album, but, anyways, it's uh, it's worth a listen. It's collected on the on the All Saints album, which was the all the, the compilation of all the instrumental Bowie songs. It's on there. Um, it's worth a listen. Uh, but I, I do believe it was cobbled together much later in Bowie's uh, trajectory. Did you
0: guys listen to that one? I did. Um, and I do agree with you. I think I talked about one song that was off of uh, Low that was also in that same camp. Um, That one was so much better put together. It was kind of light years ahead of its time.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, All all, all Saints. Yeah, that song was amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, It's fine, but it's also so forgettable. Um, So, yeah, I don't really have much to say on it. Yeah. But uh, I don't want to take up the end of
2: our episode talking about that. So let's I guess let's uh, rate this
0: this one. So for me... Um, I do give it a four point two five. It's uh, very close to being a very near perfect album. Um, it's certainly, and it's the top tier of David Bowie's work. There's no denying that. Um, there's a few things in here that little that does sag a little bit, uh, but it never is uh, boring or not interesting. It it absolutely. Uh, deserves the icon- iconic classic status that's bestowed upon it, um, but it's not one that I often reach for uh, to get a whole album experience. Um, so yeah, that's why it's a 4.25 out of me, for me.
1: I think it's, uh, for me, I've struggled, wanted to give it a 5, and I don't have any consistency to my rankings. I mean, the, the majority of these records have been... Damn near great, or, uh, you know, what's going on here? Um, but I, I, I try to think about the fives I've given, including just last week with Lust for Life, which I probably, for the rest of my life, might listen to Lust for Life more than this for a whole album experience. But then the fives I remember giving on this show were Scary Monsters and Station to Station. And this is just a tick below those for me. Um, I'll give it a I'll give it a four point five. It's, a, it's on the precipice, and um, if we did the podcast in a different order, I probably could give it a five if it landed somewhere else. Um, but it's just it, it, it's just there. It's almost it's almost in in scary monsters and station to station land. And the reasons why it doesn't get a five are not against it. I don't think there's a, a second of bad music on this album. It's just you know B2 Schneider. I'm not always gonna, not always gonna listen to it you know all the way through. Um, but at the same time, does that make something a bad album if it's not tailor made for you? No. But when you're ranking it for a podcast at 11:48 p.m., you need to look in the the mirror and say, what's a five? A five is scary monsters. A five is Station to Station. Albums where you listen to them all the way through, and you just you get a big kick out of them and you can't nothing, nothing you'll ever skip. Anyhow, 4.5 Eric. Good point.
2: Um, I gave low a five and, uh, I, this is a hard one because some of the songs on here, I like better than some of the songs on, on low heroes in its full version is unbeatable. That song itself elevates everything. And there's no real bad songs on this album, like you said, and sequencing the sequencing is much better on this album than it is on low, especially the instrumental side. it flows it flows much better it's it it starts with a pep yeah, when you get to the instrumental side it it keeps the pep, it loses it for a little bit, but it's a perfect transition and then it ends with one of the peppiest Bowie songs ever. yet low. Just kind of speaks to me a little bit more with the experimentalism and the depths that it goes to in those instrumental tracks. So I can't quite give this one a five out of five, but I, it's goddamn close. So I'm just gonna go four point five. It's 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 so close. It's so close uh to being a perfect Bowie album for me.
1: It's great. You know I can't remember what I I can't remember what I gave Low, but I definitely like this better than Low. I actually I can't remember what I gave Lodger either. But if I'm gonna rank them. I go, Heroes, Lodger, Low, and I don't think many. I know I know Lodger is usually the redheaded stepchild of the Low trilogy, but I, because of the podcast, that album got elevated for me. What do you, What do you guys? How do you guys rank them? Yeah, I
3: I,
2: I I would actually, in any given day, I could swap this for Lodger um, as being like equally amazing, but Low will always be my my favorite of the trilogy. Mark.
0: Um. Let me think about that one for just a second. Um, I think for me, they all rank very high for me, uh, by the way. Uh, but I actually am low Lodger heroes. Interesting. I feel like Lodger really spoke to all of us more than we expected it to. That is true. Yeah, that I agree.
2: Well, mm-hmm.
1: we've got another episode
2: where we can rank albums. So I guess we're better to wrap this one up.
0: I think we should. And no need to roll the dice because we we've, we've done it. Um so thank you for sticking with us as we went through all of David Bowie's studio albums including uh, soundtracks including singles. Um it's it's been co- so
2: many remixes. There's so many
0: remixes. Very and very few of them were good. Um <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> My life's work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but yeah, we'll, we'll be able to we'll be able to, to to unpack this more on the closeout episode. But yes, all the stuff Mark said, but not all of the movies we were going to watch when we first put this uh, project together. And there was this big spreadsheet that has all his movies on it. We we really were going to try to do that, too. And that fell by the wayside pretty goddamn quick.
0: Yeah, I really did. I mean, uh, this was a daunting project. I think on the outset, when we transitioned from nine inch nails to David Bowie, um, I don't think we knew exactly what we were going to be going up against. Um, so I think cooler heads had to prevail over time and just realize that w- we cannot be doing every minutia. Um, and thankfully there's resources out there. Uh, The gentleman that runs the Bowie songs, Pushing Head of the Dame uh, site has been a a wealth of information and hell of a resource as we've done our research on this season. Um, As we uh, try to put a capper on it uh, next week or next episode, I'm not sure, not going to promise it's going to be next week, but we're going to go ahead and rank all 28 of his studio albums, uh, but really talk about our favorite top 10s. And then also go through our top 10 favorite Bowie songs. Um, and just knowing us, we'll probably put something out uh, before uh, to get your guys's inputs. We would love to hear what maybe your top 10, maybe top five, top 10. And uh, we'll, we'll take a look at those, maybe read a few of those on air. Um, but again, gentlemen, can't believe we've, we've reviewed all of his I, albums. Yeah. I feel like, so thank we, uh,
2: you branched out from our own com- comfort blanket of nostalgia with nine inch nails and actually uh, wet our toes in some uh, rock and roll history with David Bowie,
1: And uh, God damn, it's been a ride. So I'm looking forward to that last episode. In, yes. And in, enforced in, in us to, and there we'll discuss the, uh, the for corporate speak out there, lessons learned on the uh, next episode. But it also made us listen to things we never would have listened to if we weren't forced to like, you're never let me down. So a lot of fun.
2: And I've never stopped listening to it. Once we, once
0: we did that, been on constant rotation. I know for a fact, I'll never listen to Tim machine again, but uh, that's just me. <laughs> um, but guys, thank you uh, as always. And thank you, the listener for putting up with us for this long. We can't, we don't really do it for, uh, Really, any fans? I will be honest. We do it just for self-indulgence reasons. It's a good little project, and we're so glad, and we feel validated and vindicated that we do have um, uh, a fan base out there. So, cannot say thank you enough for for listening to us. Um, and as always, we hope that we brought you closer to Pod.
3: But I see something bad just a looking above me, just a looking above me. I see a hole in the ground. I see a hole in the ground.